as surfers, we have a natural love for the ocean, being in the water and chasing thrills. Surfing and surf culture is at the core of Loose. We are a brand made for all-day thrill seekers, experience makers, and good time chasers. Inspired by the elements of surf that excite us the most, we create products begging for adventure, both into the water and out of the water. There's no stamp of approval needed to vibe with our tribe. So drop your inhibitions and get loose because fun feels better. Loose towels. Since 1991, Caballero Pools and Spas has been dedicated to creating an outdoor living space that will provide endless hours of fun and entertainment for your entire family. They specialize in offering excellent service and delivering top quality craftsmanship at a reasonable price. They will transform your yard into something unique and distinctive, a customized masterpiece that reflects your individual preferences. Their experience will ensure that your new backyard is something you will be proud of for years to come. Whether it's a minor project or a large master plan, Caballero Pools and Spas will help you get there. Check them out at cabpools.com or reach them at mark at cabpools.com or call 714-309-2890. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Neon Wave. Neon Wave is an internationally local shop, a concierge to the modern nomad. They bring together carefully chosen surf, fashion, art, and snowboarding gear with a curatorial eye that's drawn to the best of the best, technicality, creativity, and sustainability. Their team is born from nature, raised by the wave, and nurtured by the culture they support. This is Neon Wave. We look forward to moving forward. Check them out at thisisneonwave.com. Earth Pack. Customized, eco-friendly retail and e-com packaging since 1989. In a time of increasing environmental awareness, EarthPack is an advanced supplier of affordable recycled packaging for businesses of all sizes. EarthPack provides custom products and services and continues promoting sustainability while fulfilling the individual packaging needs of eco-friendly retailers nationwide. Check them out at earthpack.com. Finless Skateboard Company. To honor our predecessors of surf shapers, we wanted to make sure that our skateboards were completely handmade, made of solid wood, and that the designs, the line work, and aesthetics of our boards are unique to each deck we create. No heat transfers, no stickers, except for our logo. The whole board is made of carefully assembled different species of wood with cores of hard maple and top and bottom sheets carefully assembled with various types of wood species to give our boards the look of a classic 1950s surfboard. Handcrafted is human, handcrafted is thoughtful, handcrafted is quality, handcrafted is community. Finless Skateboard Company. ColbyPlus.com is a new brand from a very experienced crew in the wetsuit and surf industry an independently owned and family-run business. All of their products are made with the best in the world materials and they only sell direct. So you're getting a top of the line product for much less. Their wetsuit line, Colby Plus Yamamoto uses Yamamoto number 39 and number 40 neoprene propriety jersey and what we believe is the best and most functional design and construction available. Their line of waterproof bags Colby Plus T-Zip feature completely water and airtight German-made T-Zip zippers. They have a tight line of traction and leashes and will have board shorts on the way in the spring featuring Swiss engineered shoulder fabric. They are currently shipping orders to the US, Canada, and Australia. 
For you Aussies and Canadians, unfortunately, the shipping isn't free. ColbyPlus.com Friends and family, brothers and sisters, welcome to the Late Night with Chalky podcast. We're sitting down with Hobie Surf Shop, 70 year anniversary, and we got legends, retail royalty here. Retail royalty. Dude, congrats on the 70th year anniversary. We got Dick Metz. Bucky Berry. Bucky. Jake Schwanner. Mark Christie. Chris Carlo. <laughs> and Late Night and Chalky. Yeah. This is insane, you guys. Thank you so much. And again, congratulations. And we're going to start this off with a, a bang. Nothing but the best for the Hobie crew. Cheers to 70 years. A little bubble eh? Yeah. Uh-oh. Some Dom Perignon. Woo! Oh, this man. is good. All and right. it's Valentine's, you know. Yeah. Happy Valentine's you? Day. Valentine's yeah. Day. We got the red cups, the red, uh, <laughs> red, uh, what do you call this? And almost a cool Hawaiian floral print. Yeah, leopard print. Yeah. 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 To match the cloth. So Makes we've sense. got the past and the present and the future of Hobie here. Well, let's um, have a toast. Let's have a toast. Cheers. Cheers. Here. Hey, guys. Hello. Yeah. Great to be here. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. This is Boom. Boom. <laughs> All right. Um, there, there you go. go. So this is our our take two. We've, you know, we've... We had Hobie on That's right. before yep. yeah, with Chris yep. and Tracy uh, Sheesh right at the beginning, uh, right when we started in 2019. One of our awesome. first retailers. Yeah. And, we were honored to be there. That was great. Yeah. We were stoked to have yeah. you. Um, <clears throat> but what a... It's Valentine's Day, 2024. Um... I think we should kick it off by uh, giving one more toast to Dick Metz, who is uh, one of the (laughs) founding fathers of surf retail. Am I right? Almost the founding father. Yeah. (laughs) That's it. So, um, shoot, Dick. uh, Let's start with how you found surfing and then get into the whole thing. Well, I started surfing... As a kid in Laguna, I was born in Laguna, raised in Laguna, and who I mentioned earlier, Peanuts Larson and Hebs McClellan, two guys who were 10, 12 years older than I were, was, uh, during the Depression, didn't have a job, and they were living on the beach. The pier had gone down. We had a pier in Laguna. It all washed up on the main beach. They built a shack. We're living there, but off the ocean. They're diving and getting lobster and abalone. And they got tired of that, so they traded into my dad had a restaurant right on the beach. See, there used to be buildings and commercial buildings and houses on the main beach where the lawn is now. <clears throat> my dad had a restaurant and a bar there, so he'd trade them a hamburger for a couple of lobsters. And when I was about five or six, my dad said, I'll give you guys a beer and a hamburger at the end of the day if you look after my kid, because I was just running around, you know, in the sand and the ocean. So they didn't give a rat's ass about me, but the hamburger and the beer, that was their living. That's yeah. how they lived. So <laughs> Dick's they, doing great. Yeah, he's really good today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, you know, they just took me everywhere. That's what started me surfing when I was six years old. So these guys were surfers. Yeah, and, and they made a redwood board. They made it right on the main beach. I have it in the museum here at Shack. And uh, I, they take me riding on it because I was a little kid. They'd tandem surf with me at San Onofre in a Model A. Would drive down the rumble seat with a 109-pound redwood sticking out, and me cuddled up next to it. 
wow. and uh, would eat beans off the bean field out there in San Onofre, and, and I just started living that life and thought it was the only way to go. Wow. So that's how it started, but there was no retail then. You know, you had to find, a, there weren't a hundred surfers in, probably in the world, but certainly not in California. Wow. Uh, you know, there was, it was no fin on the board. The boards weighed a hundred pounds. You can only surf, you know, you couldn't surf at Brook Street, you know, trestles or any of those places without a fin. So you had to surf at San Onofre, Doheny, um, Palos Verde Cove, those kind of waves. You're just kind of riding right in. Yeah. So then that went along until the war started. And then surfing really stopped during the war. Uh, they had barbed wire on the main beach at Laguna. So you couldn't even go to the beach during the war, or at least the early part of the war. Yeah. So, you know, nothing happened in the surfing world, and it was uh, the, one of the great inventions was d by the English who made a mosquito bomber that made, tried to make it lighter, carry a bigger bomb load to get across the channel and bomb the Germans. They wanted to make it out of balsa wood, but balsa wood didn't have any integrity, and it couldn't carry a load, so they invented fiberglass and resin that they could fiberglass the posts uh, of balsa wood to give it enough strength and that's what changed the whole surfing world from then on we had balsa boards that we could be covered in glass and changed the weight from roughly 80 to 100 pounds to 40 pounds and so it just changed surfing dramatically so it, surfing really didn't start commercially till around 1950 when the boards were now at 40 pounds and girls started surfing, young kids could surf. So all that made a huge difference, and that's when Hobie showed up on the scene. His timing was perfect, yeah. because there was all of a sudden demand for surfboards, because nobody wanted to surf when we didn't have wetsuits, didn't have a fin on the board. I used to leave my redwood at the beach in Laguna, I'd come down from high school, and some other guy would be out on riding on. I couldn't carry it home, he couldn't steal it, so you just, <laughs> uh, just stayed on the beach. Couldn't really destroy it either. I mean, I'm sure you could. Bulletproof. So, yeah, but once fiberglass was invented, two guys from Laguna, Burhead and, uh, <clears throat> Burhead and uh, what was the other guy's name? Think of it in a minute. But anyway, they worked at Douglas Aircraft and got pieces of fiberglass and resin and put it on their two boards. And I have both those boards in the museum too. Wow. So that really changed the whole dynamics. So when Hobie came along, making balsa boards covered in fiberglass in the 50s. Uh, they were, you know, 40, 45 pounds. But balsa wood it was really limited. It was only grown in Bolivia, and uh, there wasn't enough. So Velzi and other guys started making surfboards, so there wasn't enough material to make the, the d more demand than there was material. So Hobie, you know, he was always ahead of the game. Uh, I mean, the rest of us were partying and having fun, but Hobie would be thinking about stuff. And he, what are we going to do when we run out of balsa wood? So he got a chemistry set, and he lived on Pearl Street in Laguna then, and he'd come home from shopping boards here in Dana Point, back to Laguna, and play with his chemistry set. We had styrofoam, but it was so large cell, it would tear. You couldn't work a tool with it. And Hobie was trying to get the cell structure smaller that you could work it with tools on it, you know, draw a knife. We didn't have electric tools then. So he played with that, and actually DuPont Chemical Company came out because they were working on the same kind of thing, trying to get it. But Hobie wanted a 10-foot-long hunk of it. 
and it, it because it was too when we'd make it in a mold it wouldn't go off we, we didn't we're kids what do we know and so i was the first pour we'd mix it up in a bucket and we put a, an old drill press that you'd have in a wood shop. Instead of a drill bit in there, we put an egg beater in there. And I'd put my left arm around the bucket, pull down the lever, and thing go in there and swish it around. But it really didn't mix all the chemicals up properly. So when I'd pour it in the mold that Hobie made, it was cement. We had to have a big block and tackle to get the lid up. And it weighed like oh, yeah. 500 pounds. And we're both pulling on the chain to get the lid up. By the time I'd mix it, pour it in there, the heat and the temperature varied during the day and so we'd have it real hard at one end and you could stick your finger through it at the tail block or wherever it was and so but the foam cost enough that we couldn't throw it away we had to use it so we got bondo and filled up the holes or the light snow, uh, foam and fiberglassed over it and that's the first foam boards that we made were called easter egg boards three colors we had a light blue, a white, and a kind of a reddish color. And uh, we, we need, this is pigment, not paint. So pigment was expensive, it's heavier, and it made the boards more expensive and heavier, which we didn't want. So we're trying to make them lighter and stronger, but we had to hide these big pock marks that this foam had because we didn't know that. It took three years to figure out that the humidity and the temperature during the day would be one thing in the morning, one thing later in the afternoon, and every day would change. So we had a secret spot called the Skunk Works out in Laguna Canyon. The only people that knew about it were Grubby and me and Hobie, and it was right next to where the Sawdust Festival is now, and a little old building out there, and that's where we had two molds and uh, started making the first foam blanks. First of all, how <laughs> old were you when you two met? Well, by then, let's see, that was 1950. I was uh, 22 or so. Okay. I was the old guy then, old guy now. <laughs> so was he the same age as you? you guys? No, I'm five years older than Hobie, okay. and I think three or four years older than Grubby. Okay. But we're which he, which he admits now. But I'm <laughs> sure as hell wouldn't have admitted it. Well, it's that movie that screwed me up. I mean, I lost two girlfriends in that movie because you said I was 92. <laughs> <laughs> what age were you telling me this? So well, I always knocked off 20 years. I think I could get by with 72. But. Yeah. And you were saying how Hobie came from Ontario earlier? He grew up in Ontario. And see, I knew him before that. In Laguna in those days, we didn't have Orange Coast College. So Laguna guys, Easter week was a big deal at Laguna. Riverside, San Bernardino, Chafee, Pomona, all those inland towns came to Laguna for Easter week. And we're hustling the girls from Chafee and San Bernardino. So we knew all the chicks that were at Chafee. So we said, let's go to college at Chafee. And I was a freshman in college and Hobie was a freshman in high school. But we used the same gym. I was playing football in college and I don't remember if Hobie was doing sports because he was more into building stuff. He was at wood shop swim, all day swim long. Swim team, I think he was on the swim team. Swim they team. On the swim. We didn't yeah. even have a Did you introduce here. Hobie to surfing? Well, I didn't introduce him to him, but his dad then three years later bought the house at Oak Street. And all of a sudden I'm at Oak Street on the beach. Waller Hoffman was there. We were surfing. And Hobie comes down. Oh, I remember you. And, you know, we started talking and uh, we were pals ever since. Wow. So that's how it started. So was Hobie like kind of a genius and like... Well, he was more than kind of a genius. He I mean, was a genius. He was a genius. <laughs> he, he really, 
you know, uh, he didn't go to college. He went one semester to Chafee College, but he, uh, he quit right away. But it wasn't smart. Uh, well, I mean, he was plenty smart enough. But to me, he just had a great imagination and engineering know-how. He knew how to build something that you normally you'd go and give an engineering degree to figure yeah, out yeah. how you're going to do it. I mean, I've been with Hobie a dozen times on his boat in Alaska and Hawaii and Tahiti and places, and uh, so he'd say, oh, God, i got to get a new shackle or a new something, and he'd go to a marine hardware store and couldn't find what he wanted. Yeah. He said, I can make a better one this. So yeah, then he would look at this mic stand and be like, what, you know, what are they? <laughs> How could he do it? And, yeah. you know, and then like two weeks later, you go, and he's... And got he's a prototype. It's like, you don't, you don't ever use a microphone. He's like, oh, but I knew there was a better way to do it, you know. <laughs> so snowboards. But he was and, thinking you know, he was, way ahead. So, you know, like the foam and the balsa wood. So everybody else, like Velzy, he was, oh, I was staying with balsa wood. Well, the balsa wood was harder to get, got more expensive, had knots in it, it wasn't as clean. And Hobie was trying to sell him foam, but Velzy wouldn't buy it. And he kept putting ads in the Surfer magazine. Foam is a flexi flyer. You know, he made little funny gigs about it. And he put it down. But... Hobie was way ahead. He was uh, 10 years ahead of Velzy still thinking how he's going to make a balsa board. Yeah. And Hobie's already making foam boards. We're, we're the, lucky that the, the greatest, Hobie, yes, greatest self-taught engineer, yeah. you know, the top 100 in the history of this country, I would have to say. I mean, yeah. it, it's Pretty, not that he just created things. The things he created revolutionized surfing, revolutionized sailing, sailing yeah. revolutionized skateboarding. Yeah. What's you crazy know. is that he had the foresight of you know, somebody, did anybody show him a styrofoam piece and go, oh, we can make this. We can make surfboards Dupont out of styrofoam. Well, what we did, and that's a good, that should be on here. So Hobie bought a case of uh, ice cream canister, a little like, like this cup. It was a little bit bigger. It was like a quart cup. We had a whole case of them. And every night, he'd mix different components in his little chemistry set. And then he'd write with a felt pen, uh, the date and the chemicals that were in there, and the flat roof of the Hobie store down here was a totally flat roof, so every day we'd put one of these canisters up on the roof, and it looked like a mushroom farm. You'd go up there on the ladder, and there was all these cups, and some of them would turn brown, other ones would swell way up, and Hobie had a clipboard, and he'd go up there and see what the sun was doing on these different cups, you know, every day, and he'd go Just up Just a mad there. scientist. Yeah, I mean, well, it was, and the rest of us would be down there having a beer, and Hobie'd be on the ladder. Out which which one was getting turning brown and getting soft? So all of that went into his head till he got it pretty pretty much there. But he really got frustrated because Velzy and everybody was bad mouthing it because the rest of them weren't that far ahead. Yeah, and they were still making balsa boards. Yeah, and so Hobie one day said to Grubby, uh, he said, "I'm going to give you the foam company." He said, "Call it Clark Foam. Call it whatever you want." Uh, and and the Grubby didn't have any money. He didn't pay him money for it. Hope he just gave it to him. Wow! And so Grubby went down. I left. I I was worked there first, and then I left that couple months later to go around the world. That's when I went to Africa the first time. So I left in '58. This is '58, the spring of '58, when I left to go around the world. And Grubby was still trying to figure out the humidity and the temperature because we didn't understand that. And then he learned. Grubby uh, 
fixed a hot wire that was an electric wire so we could cut the foam blanks in half and put a stringer in there wow. but the thing would get so hot and snap and here's this 15 foot long wire that's red hot and I was in there pouring on over by grabbing yelling, it's broken again and everybody had died for the floor <laughs> it was really taut they had a, a what do you call those uh, things you tighten up on? Uh, vice? Yeah. Yeah. So you had it so tight when it would break, it would just quiver and take your head off, man. And we all lay it on the floor and laughing and everything. We'd grab it put a new wire you know, in it. So in the book, in the Hobie book, the, the, the book about Hobie that Paul Holmes did, thing that, that and I've heard all these stories. Dick's got 10 gazillion stories. Right. And, and, yeah. and Hobie was actually a man of fewer words. <laughs> I knew this was going to be a dick show because his stories are just so much better than, than the rest of us combined. But in that book, the one thing that I read that I had never heard before was when they were talking to Grubby Clark and they were talking about foam and whatever, and they're saying, you know, you guys developed Clark foam. Grubby said, no, it was it was Hobie. Yeah. You know, this was the guy. This guy put in, you know, he was the one, blah, 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 and he, he handed this thing to yeah. me. I mean, I took it and ran with it, and he... No, definitely took no it question. Hobie designed it, worked on it for a ye- couple of years. Like I say, with all these things on the roof, we used to go up there and laugh. I mean, there was, the roof was bigger than this whole room. There'd be all these little canisters of them. And he monitored them every day. You know, most guys would get tired of that whole thing, but Hobie didn't. And uh, he made the foam almost perfect, but Grubby really enhanced it. And he built rockers into it. And he learned how to cut the foam and glue them. And that's what really made Clark foam better in my judgment that the other guys had to learn to uh, cut the foam and they were no. trying to do it with a saw and that didn't work. So Grubby Sock really coach. advanced it and yeah. he delivered the blanks. So when uh, Grubby quit making foam, the other shapers, they didn't know how to yeah. put rocker in a blank That's because the, Grubby had been doing that for a mm. Hobie knew and Yader knew and a couple of the old guys, but the rest of them were shit, what are we going to do? You know, they, they were out of it. Were you guys building enough boards to like like fund all this experimentation and like materials or how well, did you guys, you guys do other and, jobs? And, and, and this was 1958 when this started, or 57 when Hobie started working on it. Took a year or so. Then I was gone for three years when I hitchhiked around the world. So when I came back, <laughs> Grubby had cleaned up the phone. So instead of having the Easter egg boards, we had clear consistently good foam and so in three years it really so 61 was when the foam was really good and wow. clean actually and that's but you're that's a key element right yeah, yeah so, just, had it, so you know hobie had it not been for hobie maybe there weren't foam boards or whatever had it not for been for this guy dick metz we're not sitting in this store today yeah. so, because hobie said if you want to lose money Manufacture or sell surfboards. <laughs> you know, and if that's Hobie not, said that. Yeah, and if that's not fast enough, you know, buy a racehorse. Yeah. <laughs> because it's just the margins are so tight, and your demographic, your in customer is, you know, doesn't have you know two nickels to rub together. So you know, this guy figured out that you know you could sell five T-shirts and make more money than a, than a you know, four hundred dollar surfboard because yeah, the margin was just better. So he he figured out how to monetize. You know, uh, with soul, this whole yeah, because you had this the core surfer, and you had the people, and whether core surfers still wanted to represent and be yeah. and look like a surfer, but then you had all these other people come and they want to look like surfers or they're beachgoers. Well, so clothing was a huge part. Oh, and it was a huge. I mean, and it was like it was like going to Disneyland when I was in high school. 
you wore OP 900 shorts. That's what you wore. And you could buy them. Yeah, you could buy them in downtown Laguna at Stuart Avis. Dick knows. But nobody would buy their shorts at Stuart Avis. You had to get in your mom's station wagon, drive down, you know, cajole your mom to drive down to Dana Point Hobie store. And Dick, to his credit, bribed, you know, these manufacturers. He's like, give me the cool shit, you know. A week before anybody else gets yeah. it. So, you know, they would put stuff up literally on the sign. We have the new whatever. And, I mean, you know, to go and show up at school in a new color short, Yeah, that was a badge of courage. That meant you traveled to the Mecca, saw this guy. Yeah. And uh, So I want to go back because I know 1950s when you guys purchased the lot that you built the first shop well, on. Well, no, Hobie, uh, let's go back, 1950. So Hobie's dad bought the summer house and Hobie came down here in 1950 but I think he was only a sophomore then he didn't he graduated from high school I think 52 or 53 I can't remember which oh wow so he made boards in his dad's garage during the summer now he made he and I have argued not argued but we were all in the garage and his dad had as I remember it was neither an Oldsmobile or a DeSoto was it DeSoto DeSoto and all the the shavings for the balsa wood was getting in the car and so his dad was getting upset about it a little bit and we were all hanging out there and we were older than Hobie so we're drinking beer and Hobie's you know like 17 and we're 21 and you know so Hobie's dad and Dana Point was not a town there was no fire department no post office no police there wasn't five houses in this whole area so and so the post office finally ended up being right here. I remember one day I went across the street to get to the, the post office was this right was here. Oh, is this, this building, building. When we bought this, this building, was I was trying to describe to Hobie, office. you know, where it was and whatever. He's like, I don't, you know, it's like it's the post office. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I I came <laughs> over three buildings there. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, to buy some it. stamps. And, uh, and this was the Coast Highway to get to San Diego. There was no freeway inland. You had to go right here. And the postmaster was talking on the phone. He said, well, you know where the Hobie shop is? We're across the street. He was telling them where the post office was. <laughs> Normally, you use the post office, you're telling about something else. Yeah. But the Hobie shop was here Landmark. before the post office, before anything. So Hobie's dad built a two-car garage, 20 by 20 with a lift-up door, was the first design of it. And then because the highway was going south as well as the north, you wanted to look into it. We built a little glass thing to display boards. And that was just where Hobie made boards. It was a garage. But it would lift up door. And then um, we eventually moved down to Capitol Beach next to the po back of the post office there. And I bought this building. Hobie wanted some money, so I bought this building because I wanted to control the retail thing. So that's how the retail kind of started. And then right away when I came back from Africa, uh, Hobie said, what are you going to do? And I'd been tenant bar at the Sandpiper at night, surf in the daytime, and I'd patch boards. Uh, it's a dream job. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, yeah. yeah. It sounds, yeah, awesome. yeah, it sounds like a surfer today. It sounds yeah. like, yeah. Well, that's the way it was. So we're talking the dirty it's, bird? Yeah. 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 Uh, I tenant bar, I live right in back. Yeah. It's the, the ultimate apartment. career path. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so can I ask you, okay, so you met Hobie when he was young, and then he started shaping boards. Well, he came down here mm -hmm. and decided to make that board, his first board. Oh, wow. Yeah, he, borrowed, okay. he borrowed Walter's board, right? And he yeah. said, I well, can Walter, yeah. Walter told him we had to go to L.A. There's only one place to buy balsa wood. So Walter took him up to uh, 
Uh, what's the name of the lumberyard? Uh, Began with a V, I think. Anyway, he bought a bunch of sticks and glued them together and made that board in his dad's garage. But as I was telling Mark earlier, Hobie didn't like that board. He said it didn't work good. And so he sold it to a friend of mine. I got it from him. And um, Hobie made himself a second board that he liked better. So, you know, it was right at the beginning of making surfboards out of balsa wood, because yep. up until then, they'd been made out of redwood or combination of balsa and redwood. So, <clears throat> Hobie was right at the right timing. Balsa wood had just come in. So, the balsa wood era of surfboards was really about, you can stretch it to 10 years and say from uh, 48 to 58. And about, or from 50 to 60 were really balsa boards. And then from 60 on, pretty much everybody had foam, foam boards. boards. What'd you pay for that board? I'm guessing the guy was asking 20, you, get, you got it for 12. 15. <laughs> <laughs> so when did he become a brand? Like, well, so the first boards he made in the garage, and this is what I started to say earlier, we used to talk about, I said, Hobie, how many boards do you think he made in the garage? We figured it out every year. He did it for four years, four summers. And we think it was 88 boards he made in the garage with no label, no numbers, just a clean board. So once we came here, we started number 100 with an ink stamp with the Hobie logo on it. Ink stamp that. And then every, you know, it was just like you have, you used to, well, you don't have, you guys don't even know about that, but you used to. Like endorsing a show. You'd have yeah. to change it every day. You'd roll that little rubber yeah. roller stamp. into another yeah. number. Yeah. So number a, 100, number. Yeah, I did a couple with wood burners though, right? It, you tried it, on the Well, they tried different techniques. Yeah. And but the ink stamp worked the best. Sometimes no. it would blur a little bit if the resin was too hot. So you know all those things came along, and then eventually a, a friend of Hobie's came up with the lo with the uh, Hobie, logo. Hobie logo that we put on. Uh, was it Severson? Severson. Yeah. Se John Severson. John Severson. Was, well, I don't remember that. Surfing magazine. Was it? Yeah. Hey, well, Dick, what, what year did they introduce the fin to the board? <clears throat> Sir, the, the fin. To the board. Well, skag, now that's skag. a whole other story. So well, uh, <laughs> I'm just curious on like, well, you know, you guys yeah. were writing so, boards without fins. Fins. Well, yeah. so once fiberglass came along, see, this is what changed. To me, fiberglass had such an impact on the surfing world. So right away, you could cut the weight down because it's a balsa wood in total covered in fiberglass. But you could see up until then, we had no fins. There was no way to attach a fin. I mean, you'd have little fins maybe two inches deep with a screw going into the yeah. stringer, but it hit the beach and it'd break off. So it wasn't until we had fiberglass, you'd lay up six, seven layers of cloth on the fin to give you an eight, six, eight, seven inch deep fin that was really a fin so you could turn it. So like up Bob until Simmons, then, who, was the, who, who led the charge on that? Well, every, I'm not sure who did it first, but the, once fiberglass came out, that just happened. So Matt Kivlin sure. and Joe Quigg and See, there was what I call tribes. There was the Malibu tribe. There was the South Bay, Hermosa, Manhattan. There was, <clears throat> there was no data point, but it was more Laguna. And then there was a, a La Jolla group. And, you know, we didn't have telephones in. You know, you guys can't kind of imagine how it was. We had ways to talk on the phone. Uh, I gave a talk about that the other day, where we'd call person to person, because it didn't <laughs> cost anything to call if they didn't answer. Yeah, yeah. So we'd call person to person to Mr. B. Swell in La Jolla. 
And, uh, you know, I'd be calling Butch Van Arsdale or something. Butch would answer the phone and I'd say, well, be swell in here. And we'd say, well, I'll call back at 6.15. Well, that meant it was six foot and a little windy. If it was six foot, no wind. 6.30 so was really away blown free out. Calls by <laughs> and, and the operator would, the operator was right there and she said, okay, we'll call back. And uh, Surf reports that, for free. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the way we live. Oh, the dude. whole lifestyle was saving but we didn't have any money yeah. it was the depression and right after that yeah. and we were living on the beach so timeline hobie opens the shop in 1954 70 before. years ago today. today 70 years ago today right so it was a was he selling boards before the shop or no. well he made boards in the garage okay and so uh, See, in those era, there weren't much demand, so guys would come by and say, well, there's a guy down on uh, Oak Street, Hobie, his name's, you know, that would will make you a board. Up until then, like, I had Peanuts made my first one, uh, Velzy made my second one board, my new board, under the Manhattan Pier, and he just shaped it with a draw knife under the pier. It took a month, you know, he wasn't working all day long, he'd yeah. go shape a little bit and go have a beer and get in the water, you know, so... Hobie kind of was, he was more responsible. Hobie was a responsible, dependable, you know, realistic guy. And yeah. so he got married early to Sharon, a Laguna girl. So he had to kind of, he had an early family. You know, he had to kind of produce. Where the rest of us, we weren't getting married. Are you kidding? <laughs> we're you you were surfers. <laughs> I'm going to hitchhike around the world. Chicks. Yeah. 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 So, so that's just the way we kind of lived. But. Hobie would get orders, and pretty soon he made an order blank, and you'd fill it out. You know, you wanted nine six, and you had a choice. You could have a T-band or a two-inch balsa stringer, and then all that started adding to it. But this was steps of the evolution. It didn't happen all at once. And then the Phil Edwards board comes along with two offset stringers, offset T-bands. You get a t uh, nose block, tail block that was two dollars and fifty cents extra. <laughs> so all these things added <clears throat> on to it. Yeah. And and so pretty soon the card got bigger. We got more organized. And then it, when we had the factory, when it was really kind of a factory, you know, the sander had to sign it and initial it, and so you could tell who shaped it, who glassed it, who glossed it. And then when I came back from Africa, uh, that's when Hobie said, what are you going to do now? And like by then I was 34 or 5, I don't know. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to 10 bar at the sandpiper and keep surfing. And he said, well, you know, you can't make any money doing that. Well, I can make more money uh, 10 and bar than I could shaping surfboards. I know that right away. So uh, he said, well, come to Hawaii. See, I'd been to Hawaii four or five times. And I took a Matt Kivlin balsa board to Hawaii. First time I had to go on the Lurling. The airplane couldn't fly that far. So I had to go on the Lurling. Cost $140 round trip on the Lurling. <laughs> uh, so I took a new Matt Kivlin balsa board over with me. And when I left, I left it with Rabbit Kekai and, and uh, Wada and uh, Downey and all those guys. Because they didn't have new boards or balsa boards. They are still riding hot curl boards, no fin. And so having a new Matt Kivlin balsa board, you know, I was a hero giving him the, the board. There's so many questions I want to <laughs> ask. I, I know, I don't so want to interrupt. I just want to keep hearing. This is incredible. <laughs> well, well, that's how it happened. And then, uh, well, I the first time I went home, back home on the Lurley, and, uh, you know, in those days there's no security or anything. And so, <clears throat> well, I mean, I could throw so much in here, and I don't want to take too much time, but 
uh, M. Nee came along. We're surfing and cut off Levi's. That's all we surfed in. There was no trunks. Uh, there was no beach stuff in the early years. Mm -hmm. So when we went to Macaw, I've got pictures of me in torn off Levi's. They're all kind of raggedy. And we got this one-legged Chinaman named M. Nee who lived in Macaw. We'll edit that out. Yeah. <laughs> we'll edit. <laughs> no, anyway, that's all good. But then his wife lost this is her leg. Too. Next have ever been politically yeah, both of them. <laughs> both. I, I heard the story. Yeah. Well, that's right. They both had ended up with one leg. Wow. And they were a great couple. So. I lived in the Quonset hut with Downing and Walder and, uh, uh, well, Flippy came over part of the time. A bunch of us were living there. We made our own beer in the bathtub. And uh, so we'd see M.D., the tailor. He's a Chinese tailor. He's making suits for Chinese and Filipino guys that are cutting cane in the cane fields. And so when they'd get married, they had to have a suit. And M. Nee made him a suit. So one, we called him Nee. We'd, we'd always kid him. We'd yell at him and give him the finger and everything. And so one day we said, hey, Nee, you got, can you make a pair of trunks? Yeah, yeah, I make trunks. You know, he talked half Chinese. And he's kind of talking around. Yeah. And so we started designing a pair of trunks. And he made, and he bought a, uh, we had a, a broomstick. And he bought little uh, things of ribbon, different colored ribbon. And it's if those, and so then you could pick out the color of ribbon you wanted down the side wow. of your Amney trunk. Cost two dollars and fifty cents a pair, but it took him six months to make the damn thing. <laughs> oh, for him forever. And he was well, he's one legged. He couldn't hop around. So Parental <laughs> advisory. <laughs> was he using the same suit material that he was making? No, he used a, a denim for okay. the base, and then you could pick out the stripes, stripes. you wanted on. So. And so. It had a button fly, and, a, and then we got him to put uh, a wax pocket on the side of the leg and made wow. it longer. Because in those days, the wax we were using was para-wax or a candle, and the hair on your legs would get all that wax on it. And so he made tighter trunks around your knees so your leg of the trunk wouldn't come up over your thigh because it's bigger. So, you know, we started making all this stuff. We were designing. He going, ah, okay, boy, okay. And he's chattering away there with yeah. his wife. <laughs> so and he's so, kind of the first board short maker. Oh, absolutely. First dad. Uh, That's incredible. Did, did you know that Randy Hild and... Uh, he did a book on it. He, he made, he relaunched and the new name. He got yeah. the name back. Yeah. yeah. I helped Mr. him with all yeah, that. Oh, you did? Yeah. Okay. That's where it's from. We have the catalog. That's incredible. Yeah. Their clothing. Wow. Yeah. So incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I heard that and me kind of was renowned and people like Elvis oh yeah well after a while to make well he could he made so few and he's hand making them and he's hopping around and so I ordered <laughs> like three or four pair of MDs I'm going back I, I get told him a month ahead me I want blue one here and with red stripes and a yellow or whatever and uh, no problem, Dick, no problem, he said. And so I said, well, I'm going. And every week I'd say, oh, next week, next week. And uh, so pretty soon, the day I'm leaving, 4 o'clock in the morning, I say, me, where are my trunks? Oh, almost. I have them ready. And so I go to the, the harbor, and all the Hawaiian guys, because I gave them this Matt Killen board, so all the beach guys come on the board, on the boat, on the lure lane, and start having a big party. And like I say, there wasn't any security in those days, it was not a big deal. So we're all there back there drinking and everything, and I know M.D. trunks, and pretty soon the guy says, hey, M.D., 
knee, that knee down there. And he's hobbling up the gangplank on one crutch. He only had one, he had one leg, one crutch. Right, right. So he didn't need two. And so <laughs> he comes up, he's got all my trunks. He comes on board the little and got all my trunks. I pay him $2.50 for each one. <laughs> and so he hobbled off, and that was when I brought him over here. And that's how Duke Boyd got Doris Moore, who is a dressmaker in Long Beach, to knock off the MD trunks, and that's where Hang Ten started. Wow. That's, wow. <laughs> that's, so that's insane. So there's so many crazy, awesome, historical side, yeah, whole podcasts yeah. on all these little side stories. I'm happy to do them because I think it's months. important history. So. Yeah, I love yeah, it. Anything, well, considering, I'm yeah, this guy is sharper than a sharper yeah. attack and 94 and yeah. he lived it. So yeah. it's incredible. Can I ask you, okay, so 1954, back at Hobie, Hobie um, you were working with him? 54 I was. Okay. You helped him open yeah. that shop. Well, I mean, I was patching boards. You know, I never got a paycheck from Hobie. Uh, and so the patching boards, you'd get the guy that, whose board you were patching, he paid you. And so I was never on Hobie's payroll. That was a, kind of a big deal with me. Yeah. Creed and all the other guys were getting the paycheck. And Hobie had his wallet, you know, when he'd sell a board, he'd put it in his wallet and he could hardly bend it over. It was so fat. He'd go to the bank maybe once a week and he'd have like 500 bucks in there. But it was, you know, a wallet how they bend in half. He couldn't bend it in half. He had to put it down his Levi's because it was too fat. Yeah, it was too my back, my neck. <laughs> and then he started hiding it. When I took over the store, I enlarged it and I found money and envelopes between the drywall twice. I called over oh, and I said, I just, awesome. I just found some of your stash. And he said, really? I'd bring him down 400 bucks or something. He got That's <laughs> what a good friend. That's incredible. <laughs> so, 1954, Four. Valentine's Day, you opened the shop. What was the... Um, what was the turnout like? Was no, it, no, there was, but see, you got to understand, there's 20 guys surfing yeah. you know, in all of Orange County. Yeah. We're down at the beach. You know, opening was not like a big deal. Yeah. Like today, you know, you got a band playing, you got everything going. But Hobie was down there. We came by. So we'd go to the trestle and surf in San Onofre. So that would, became our clubhouse. So on the way back, or if it gets blown out, we'd come in, bring a six pack, and even. And this is a great story, I think. So Laguna, this is how loose the culture and the lifestyle was. So in Laguna, to be a lifeguard, you had to be a Laguna guy. You had to be born and raised there. <laughs> to be a fireman, you had to be a Laguna guy. So <clears throat> Keyhole and Vernie Gregg and all these guys were firemen in Laguna, but they were just beach guys. Yeah. And so <clears throat> it wasn't opening day, but it was pretty close to it. So they all got in the fire truck full-on red lights styron from Laguna all the way to the Hobie shop and with two kegs of beer and on the <laughs> and fire truck. Yeah, and we had a big party at the that's Hobie shop. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Yeah. That's, that's, Nothing's that's, changed. A, that's a grand opening. Yeah. 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 What, what products were you selling? Like, what was just boards? Just boards. And wax. So that was the problem. Well, there wasn't even wax. Was you used, wax you used candles at first. The next step in wax was para-wax, which my mom used to can with. You'd buy a box that was about this long, and it had little squares, kind of like sex wax is now, but it was called para-wax, and you'd can fruit and vegetables for the winter, and so we'd buy a box of that wax and cut it up and use that. So then the next step of that evolution was like surfboards and clothes and all this stuff kind of went along in tandem 
and the clothes, so the hang ten trunks with the knockoff of M. Nee, and then O.P. came out, and I started a company, you might remember, with jams, so in surf, uh, so I moved to Hawaii, I had to be in Hawaii then, so in 61, Hobie and I, when I got back from Africa, he said, let's go to Hawaii, you know all those guys, and I, I gotta go over there on business, so Hobie had George Downing as his agent, now George is a Portuguese guy, and uh, he's got a rental shop on Waikiki. George was more my age. I think I'm a year older than he was or something. Yeah. But Hobie hired him, and so George would fill out one of these order forms that Hobie had drawn up and invented and send a deposit and the thing back to Hobie and Dana Point to make the board there. Then he'd ship it back to George, and George made 10 bucks for writing the order up, getting it back, and Hobie was wholesaling really to George. Well, George being the Portuguese sharp guy that he was, he didn't want to just make 10 bucks, so he'd take the order on a Hobie blank, and he'd go make the board himself, and forget about sending it to Hobie. Cutting out the middleman. <laughs> yeah, cut him out, <laughs> flat. So Hobie wasn't getting any orders, and so Hobie was getting suspicious. You know, he said, there's enough guys in Waikiki, I ought to be selling a few boards, yeah. and every now and then George would send him an order just to keep him hungry, I guess. And so. The, because I knew Downing, see, I'd been there four or five times and lived there for a while. When I got on the, I went to the Korean War and I had the GI Bill, so I went to graduate school at the University of Hawaii. I didn't really go to school, but I kind of went there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of went there. Yeah. <laughs> That's another story. Yeah, too, that, yeah you're out of, uh, you know, yeah. I'm living in the Quonset, collecting $26 a week from the government yeah. as a, going to college. And I did go to a couple classes, but I it wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. So <laughs> that was my education. Uh, and UCSB. Well, I did that too, but that was, well, I went, I got kicked out. Uh, that's a bunch of stuff. <laughs> but that's another yeah, story. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a good story too. I set off a bonfire and burned up a truck. It just exploded. It was fabulous. <laughs> it made the biggest bonfire you'd ever seen. Made out of telephone poles and railroad ties filled with tires and I ran the truck right into it and they went up like a, like a rocket. But we've all done that. Yeah. <laughs> I never heard of such a So I know that uh, So the opening about... was not a big deal is okay. what I'm trying to say. But yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't that kind of a thing. Then, yeah. you know. But we'd stop there and have beers and talk to Hobie and find out well how is the surf you know, somewhere else because you didn't drive up and down the coast so much then. So what do you what are the things that you saw attribute to the popularity of surfing? Well, like the, what, it was, brought more people. Well, it was several things. The fact that we went to balsa boards and that changed the weight from the redwoods that were 80 to 100, now is down to 30 or 40 pounds. So younger kids started surfing, more demand. Girlfriends of the guys surfing started surfing. So the smaller boards. So all of that, and then the fact that <clears throat> they could turn them. Now you also had a fin, so you could surf at more places. Before, you had to just ride white water and kind of with a big redwood, you know, tail block you know, two feet wide, yeah. so it wasn't as fun. So this changed the dynamics of the sport with the fin, so then you could start surfing at Thalia Street and Oak Street and Brook Street and, 
you know, all the other little beach breaks. And Mickey Munoz in a bikini as Gidget. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that had a lot well, to, you know. now all that stuff started happening. So the yeah. movies come out, and so there's no magazines up until Severson. I think the first magazine was '61. So it wasn't until the '60s that it really took off. The '50s were gathering momentum. And the most boards we ever sold, I think, was 7,000 one year. Damn. In, in, in 64 or 5. Wow. And then, so that was a lot of boards. Yeah, we, by then, we had agents on the East Coast. I have stores in Hawaii. You know, we're branching out. So uh, all this kind of was evolution of, of the industry, and more products were coming out. So when I first opened the Hobie store, which was the first retail store, so up until then, you would go to a guy's garage or Hobie's place. He made the board there. It wasn't a retail store. You couldn't walk in and buy it. You'd make an order, and you'd come back six weeks later and pick up your board. So all of a sudden in Honolulu, brand new store, I had 100 surfboards. A guy could walk in, $105 and walk out, and he'd be surfing in 10 minutes. Wow. So that was a huge breakthrough. But I was only making $10 a board, and I got to pay rent. I got to earn some money and not very much but a little bit and I got to have a couple of beers so I'm saying to Hobie I said God, I got to have other stuff to sell and so he <clears throat> well we started a company over here this was our mentality we we thought so we're thinking like this Hobie was always bigger I'm like this Hobie's like that so I said we got to make some t-shirts and so we went to LA and found a screen guy and he made the Hobie logo and we started telling t-shirts were $2.50 for a t-shirt then. Big Hobie, Dana Point, California. So <clears throat> I take those to Honolulu, but nobody wanted a Honolulu, a Dana Point store when they're in Honolulu. And I'm thinking, I called up Hobie one day, and in those days the phone calls were big lull in between, a lot of static, you'd hardly hear them. Said, Hobie, is it okay if I change Dana Point to Honolulu? You can do whatever you want. If it's good for you, it's good for me. He must have told me that a thousand times. So <laughs> awesome. We never had a contract. We never wrote anything. I don't even think we shook hands. It was just like, go do what you want to do. If it would be good for you, it will work. So I went to a, another Chinese guy down this guy had both legs. He's screaming stuff. And I got I gave him a Hobie shirt and he took off the Dana Point, California and put Honolulu and Hawaii. And all of a sudden I am selling t shirts. Cause see, people that would come to Hawaii, they wanted some recognition that they had been there. And so to come back to the Hobie shoot that Honolulu and Hawaii on the back, they they'd buy a dozen of them and take them home in a suitcase. You know, they weren't a big deal so all of a sudden my t-shirt sales I'm making more on those other only other thing I had was a, a 10 cent Hobie logo and some days I would never sell a surfboard I look on the cash for the other day 20 cents I took in for the whole day's operation sold two decals you know I said that's not gonna pay the rent yeah <laughs> not even close so I got the t-shirts going and then I said Hobie we gotta have something where a guy that has a real car, not a pickup or a, with a rumble seat or open in the back, 
we got to have a rack. And so he got some guy making Aloha and Rimcon racks. They were made two kinds. One went in the rain gutter, the other was a suction cup on the roof. So you spawned that idea? Well, it was, I, I didn't make them have anything to do with it, but I said, we got to have a way to carry the guy's board. He comes in. Because everything else is out the back window. Yeah. And, and well, then, then put the him truck, in the side window. Side window. The guy's going down the street and hit a telephone pole on the yeah. sidewalk or something. Cook you know? of the day so, stuff. So yeah. I said, hey, we got to get no, a rack. Right. So we have one of those racks here, too. Yeah. 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 And so I just needed more stuff to sell. Yeah. And so racks came in, T-shirts, the logos, and you know we just kept adding stuff. And then I started the clothing company with jams uh, called Surfline Hawaii. Was the same time that Hang Ten came out. So we started that in 1964, and that was the first year that uh, the Makaha contest was live on TV. And uh, what was his name? Uh, um, uh, uh, the announcer, famous announcer. Uh, Dick. Uh, I want to say Mac something. Uh, I got nothing. Uh, yeah. Nothing? You can't think of that? You'd In remember. 1964, Damn. I was okay. five. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget that. Anyway, he came over and he's in a suit and tie. He's rolling up his got pants and he's all wet. But you know how the uh, short break of McCall gets everybody wet. So <clears throat> I said, Cor no, no, Corky probably wasn't old enough then, but Munoz. Uh, I don't think Phil was in it, uh, the Pattersons. I, <clears throat> and so we made about eight pair of jams. And up until then, everybody's wearing M-knees or cut-off Levi's. And so the jams were a Aloha print and longer. And I got Munoz and those guys in those. Doyle was another one I put on those. And so I said, you got to wear this. Oh, God, those are too bright. I don't know. Everybody's a little nervous. I said, they're gonna, the judges can see you at Makah. They're way the hell out there. I said, the judges are going to see you. Oh, and they all want it. Salesman. I almost said it. McCoy. Mc, uh, Dick McCoy? No, no. The announcer. Yeah. Anyway. Jim McKay. Jim McKay. Jim McKay. Exactly right. Oh, there there it is. is. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. <laughs> that guy. Yeah. 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 And so I have the, the guys on the Hobie Surf team are in jams, and they're filming this live, and we're all laughing having a good time. And Kay Nui, Rockland's, I was partners. I put up the money. Rockland designed them. Well, he didn't design. He just got Aloha Prince. And she sewed them at the dining room table and we'd be having dinner. And she made like eight pair and I put them in the Hobie shop and gave them to the team guys. Now it's on television. We're laughing, we're down at the outrigger next the week later. And we get a long, get a, a long distance call at the bar at the outrigger. And the, the guy yells at me, the bartender, he says, Dick, it's for you. I said, for me? And I answered and said, uh, this is uh, Lord and Taylor uh, in New York City. I never heard of Lord and Taylor. And, uh, I'm thinking it's some con. You know, we're always conning each other. I said, yeah. this has got to be a con. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I said, uh, you know anything about jams? I said, yeah, why? what do you know about them? You know, I'm kind of antsy. So he said, well, we want to buy some. Well, I said, that's no problem. We got thousands of them over here. And Canoe, they only made like six pair. And I handmade them on the table. And uh, they said, well, how, we want to put an order in. Well, we're so, I said, we're so busy. I don't know. You know, I'm thinking this guy's trying to con me. I'm yeah. going to con him. And uh, <laughs> so I said, well, you got to send some money first. You know, that's the first step. And he said, yeah, where I sent it? I sent it to the outrigger. I said, our office is so busy. We're doing extra work at the Outrigger Canoe Club. And uh, <laughs> said, well, we're going to send you a check 
for ten thousand dollars. I said, Holy shit! <laughs> we never seen ten thousand dollars. So about a week later, I got a check for ten grand, and we're at the bar at the Outrigger, all buying everybody drinks and thinking we hit the gold mine, man. This is big. Stuff. How many units did they order? Well, we, I didn't. We didn't know with ten thousand dollars. We didn't have. We didn't have any way to do it, and so. Wow. We, we had canoes making jams, you know, 24 hours a day. And so we'd send them 10 pair. Say, we're so busy. We're hardly getting, you know, you're a late customer. We got all this stuff. <laughs> hey, you're the only customer, but hey. Yeah. And so we finally, he got his stuff and everything. But obviously, that just set off the whole <clears throat> surfwear industry. So Hang 10 is out, and we're out. And the, we had reversed Aloha shirts. That was the first time they'd reversed the print, mm. and we'd done that. And uh, so I'm taking the note. This is before Chart House, before normal steakhouses. There's one steakhouse on Beach Walk Road and down on Waikiki, just off uh, Kalakaua. <laughs> and uh, they got <clears throat> uh, top sirloins are $2.50. T-shirts, two dollars and fifty cents. Wow! So I never spent any money. I'd take a half a dozen T-shirts when I'd go out at night with a date, drinks, and cocktails, and dinner for two. Order system. And I'd trade Hobie T-shirts for a top sirloin, and it was that went on for years. And they raised the top sirloin price. I raised the T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Inflation economics. <laughs> So that's the way the whole thing kind of yeah. started. That's we, incredible. We did that when we worked at the service board at night. We'd call oh, yeah. pizza joint, like, hey, come, you know, pizza? Okay, what size t-shirt are you? Same yeah. thing. It was awesome. No, that's <laughs> what you do. So good. So first, you opened up here in Dana Point. Then Hawaii was the second location. Oh, Hawaii was the second. The okay. third one was Lahaina. Okay. And that had a dirt floor. I put a carpet on it over a dirt floor. And uh, I hired, uh, her name was Phyllis Smith. She married Al Smith. Her name, before, her maiden name was Claire, no, it was Claire, uh, I'm gonna think of her last name in a minute, uh, but it'll come to me. So I hired her, and I have a picture, you've seen her. Yeah. And she is standing in front of the store. It's about the size of this room and with a little baby that she had just had. And about four years ago, I was having lunch in Newport, and a guy, bald-headed guy with a beard came up, and he said, are you Dick Metz? And I said, yeah. He said, well, you don't recognize me, but I was a baby in You're that picture. You're kidding me. No way. <laughs> how, how did he Amazing. know you were going to be there? Or? Well, he didn't. He just saw me and knew my name. I don't know how he knew, but he came over and introduced himself. That's amazing. And he was like 60 years old. And, uh, but that was from the Lahaina store. It was the second Hobie store, or the third Hobie. Dana Point, Honolulu, Lahaina. Yeah. And then I started opening them here. Santa Monica, uh, Santa Cruz, San Diego, um, Corona Del Mar, Laguna, of course. Uh, the Laguna one is, is really interesting, and, I need, and you need to know this. I probably told you, Mark and Jake, but <clears throat> I opened the Corona Del Mar stir first, so I'd leave Dana Point about 11 and take merchandise from this store to the Corona Del Mar store, but I'd stop in Laguna for lunch. And I'd go down Forest Avenue, of course, the Forest Market was there, not the restaurant that's there. And I'd order a sandwich, and I'd take a clipboard that I learned from Hobie on the roof, and I'd go sit on the bench, 
and eat my sandwich and I'd ask people that were coming by, I said, I'm a college student taking a re doing a research and why do you walk on this side of the street and not that side and where do you park your car? And so I start marking all this down and I want a store in Laguna and I picked out five locations. I wanted one of those five locations and no place else after I got a little statistics on where, which way it was going. And so That's finally, genius. Uh, the guy, I look up all the guys that owned those five stores. John Gilbert yeah, yeah. owned the first store. So I call up John Gilbert and rented the store, which was the first Hobie store on Forest <laughs> Avenue, and to move in there. And so we had a lease for five years, I think, or maybe even 10 years. And uh, I kept telling John, I said, I want to buy this store. Oh, Dick, he said, you love it here. This is great for Hobies. You can stay here forever. I said, no, but I need to own it. And so this about this time, Mark had to be 15 by then or so. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. So I said, we, I got to own this stuff. I can't be paying all this rent all over the place. So, so you were smart early, 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 early on. And so well, Gilbert, Gilbert uh, wouldn't sell it to me. I said, well, I'm going to move if you don't sell it. Oh, he said, you'll never move. And so... Uh, I did move, and Mark, we got this store where it is now, and it was actually three stores. It was yeah, yeah. a clothing store, and a hardware store, yeah. and a dress store. And uh, so anyway, we bought that, and then I want to ask you this, this is part of the, of the whole deal, so uh, this I had to ask you, so I'm giving a speech next week at the Rotary Club, and I wanted to tell this story. So. Stu Avis was on the other side of... Yes. Uh, uh, you know where I'm going yeah, with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So exactly Stu Avis had this clothing store, but it was a, a sport coat, a, you know, button-down shirts, and a dress store. Uh, they didn't even sell Levi's there. And so the Hobie store had, you know, by then we were totally in a clothing thing. And uh, so I used to go to the bank, and, and we had a commercial aisle to make your daily deposit. So about 10 o'clock every morning, I'd take the money from the Laguna store, go to the bank. And by then, Stuart Avis had died and sold it to Earl, Earl Dawson. Dawson. Uh, and so Earl would be in line with me, and I'd say, well, how was your work in Earl? And they'd say, well, it was pretty good. And we got to be kind of friends. We were kind of competitors, but not really. He didn't sell trunks. and. We didn't sell dress shirts, but we're still kind of selling clothes, and there was an overlap. We had a Lois shirts, and I think he had a Lois shirts yeah, too. Yeah, he had Spooner. So, so yeah, there was a little bit. So we didn't talk too much because we were competitors, and so this went on. You know, I got to know him, and we're in line almost every day. Hey, Earl, how's it going? Well, I said, you know, some. Well, I, we're on TV, right, or whatever we're on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you can cuss. I said, okay, well, I said, uh, uh, what's going on? How are you doing weekend? And he said, you know what happened? He said, some asshole up in L.A. that owns this store, they sold it to somebody else, and they changed my lease. I said, really? And so in the meantime, I'd heard the building came up. I said to Mark, i got to buy that store because I never know where we're going to be. Yeah. So I said, we want to buy it under a blind trust. <laughs> so... We bought the store, and the Earl store. The Earl, okay. As you kick him as, out, as First American Trust. Yeah, they didn't kick him out. No, and so we blind trust. He didn't know, and so I'm talking to him. I now own his fucking store. <laughs> <laughs>
How's your day? How's it going? He said, you know that son of a bitch that owns my store? He changed my lease from a percentage to a full monthly uh, rent. So I just changed it to flat. He said, he told me one day in line, he says, you know, I have two sets of books. He said, I don't want to pay that high rent. And it was on... It was on a percentage. Unbelievable. <laughs> no, unbelievable. And it's it's not even, it was not surprising. To be <laughs> and, and the guy yeah. was so, he was he kept saying, this son of a bitch in L.A. that owns this thing, he said, change my lease. Now i got to pay way more rent, and I'm not on a percentage, and I can't cheat anymore. He's telling me all this yeah. shit. And I'm laughing like hell in life. <laughs> <laughs> and so I go back and tell Mark, you got to change that lease right now. And so... The guy, I, I was afraid to ever tell him. He would have had a heart attack. Never knew. Oh, my God. He would have died. Yeah, yeah. died on the floor. But he is dead now. So we can talk so about it. We can tell yeah. him. So if I, if I say it to, to Rotary, it's okay if yeah. I say that? Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm going to tell that story to Rotary. So tell us, why didn't you pursue the clothing thing? Well, we did. Or did you? Okay. Oh, well, but what happened, so Hobie's... You know, Hobie and I are buddies, he's called me, so he comes over between marriages. Now, he divorced Sharon, and he called me up. He said, well, and, you know, he got married five times, a couple times just for Christmas at the end of the year. <laughs> there was a law then. If you got married in December, you could deduct a certain amount of money for the whole year. So Hobie would have... Is that still in, in law? No. <laughs> no, I'm changing that. Figure that out. <laughs> but Hobie would have him sign the divorce papers first, and then signed the marriage agreement. So they'd be married for three or four weeks, but they tucked in. They didn't want to leave, you know. Nice deal. You're living down at the beach. <laughs> so, but every time he'd do that, he'd call me and say, I'm coming over. I just got rid of that last one. <laughs> and so, so say, get me a day. Geniuses. It's like surfboards, you know? <laughs> Yeah, this was getting married for a couple of years. So, anyway, all this stuff was going on. But to ask your question, I I put up the money for Surfline. I borrowed $50,000 to put the money up to Dave Rockland. So, Rockland was kind of like a Hobie. He was an enterprising, creative type of guy, and he liked clothes. He wasn't gay, but he liked clothes. And so, he started designing (laughs) this stuff. And. so, um, <laughs> you, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't run all this stuff. I'm having stores all over. I had stores in Florida, yeah. you know, and I learned real quick that if I fly from Honolulu to uh, Daytona, Florida, I mean, there's not enough profit in the surfboards to pay an airplane ticket. So right away, I figured out I got to get rid of the stores. You want them really condensed. So then I went on a whole other thing. I want to be able to drive to every store within a day. So originally, this is another thing Hobie and I used to laugh about. So we would start these companies. So Hobie's surfboard was the nucleus of the whole thing. And Hobie owned that 100%. I I owned none of that. And so when we started a t-shirt company, we went up to LA and did that. Uh, And uh, so I put up the money for that. And when it got to $50,000 in sales, we got a you had to build more stuff and there was more risk building more inventory you know that Jake and so Hobie would say God you know I don't I don't want the Hobie surfboard shop to be the tied into that of that yeah. so we'd make a different corporation so I had all these corporate I had like 20 corporations wow. we didn't have LLCs then they were just corporation and I got CPAs and doing this corporation and all this and I couldn't keep up with all this crap 
So I started merging them. So then I had a California corporation and a Hawaii corporation. And so when they got too big or too much risk, then we'd sell the company. And that's what the Hobie didn't want to do t-shirts because you had to order a railroad car of raw t-shirts. You know, it would be 100 grand and then you got to sell them before you get your money back. So a lot of these things we started off doing, saw that it was good profit, but we didn't have the guts or the capital to go expand on those things. You so, got to a certain level and yeah, you got to go and shit. We, get, we didn't want to risk anymore, yeah. and so then we'd <clears throat> sell the company. We yeah. sold the t-shirt company, and so in Hawaii, I did the same thing with Surfline. So, <clears throat> Surfline? Surfline was the company that I started that owned Jam. Okay. So Jam's and then the shirt. So that, that was the corporation, Surfline Hawaii. And so we started making, and this scared the hell out of me. So Rockland was, Hobie was conservative and money-wise. Uh, Rockland was not. And so <laughs> Rockland wanted to, so we're making all this stuff, and we went to the first clothing show. In those days, it was in Palm Springs. And we take over a half a dozen reverse t uh, Aloha Boy. shirts and jams, and we're selling the hell out. We're getting all these orders, which meant we had to buy more material and, mm -hmm. and go print and make Fund all the these production. things. And you yeah. had to pay the, the labor cost on it. And so I'm scared to death. And so I borrowed $50,000 from the bank based on the Hobie store that I had just down the street. That was the credit. And I didn't want to risk that by losing it in the clothing company. So who, sorry to interrupt, but when you did the Palm Springs show, show who was buying? Who was the customer? Well, then all of a sudden, when I say all of a sudden, so surf shops now started happening. You know, uh, Bing, Greg Knoll, Dewey Weber, they all started making, they were 10 years younger and more or less 10 years behind us. So, the, but they're making surfboards and they're watching us. Don Hansen comes down from, he's from South Dakota, yeah. starts shaping boards at Hobie's. And I was a good, still am, I talked to him today, he's in the hospital. He fell down and he's got uh, 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 neuropathy and he fell down and oh, no. he's in the hospital. Anyway, good friend. And I hope he's okay. But uh, he worked for Hobie. He said, as soon as I learn how to shape, I'm going to Encinitas and open a Hanson store. So Velzi worked for Hobie. You know, Velzi would always lose money, got busted by the IRS. He had a big uh, Mercedes SLA or whatever that. 300 SLA, yeah, the Gullwing. Yeah, Gullwing thing. Yeah. And so, Velzi did? Yeah, Velzi did. He was, I forgot I had to pay taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I got the sweet car. Yeah. Well, from the rest of his yeah. life, Velzi did everything in cash. He, he would just deal in cash. He had to pay him in cash. He would pay whoever he did in cash. There was no checks. And then he kept what he kept. But, you know, that's why Velzi, you know, he just couldn't grow enough. He didn't have the wherewithal to yeah. kind of do that. And we, we ran him and he moved. See, Velzi started in Hermosa Beach. That's where he made my first board under the pier. And then in his dad's garage. And then he teamed up with Jacobs and Hap stayed in Hermosa, and Velzi moved to San Clemente to compete with Hobie. But 
Velzy was great. He, we would have little printed cards on all the new boards. You know, Hobie nine six tail block two dollars fifty cents, hundred and five dollars total right there. Velzy would put them with a felt pen right on the board on glass, <laughs> and a guy would come in and say, Hobie Velzy would always ask him first, "What size you looking for?" Uh, I want a 9.10. And Velzy put his hand over it and erase it and say, here's a 9.10. I just got finished it up. It was a 9.6. <laughs> the guy to come so back good. a week later, he said, I measured that fucking board and it's a, it's a 10-foot or whatever it was. You know, but that's the way Velzy, he was fun. He was a great guy. He really was. He was fun to be with, fun to party with. Yeah. Uh, and I can tell you some stories that we can't even cut on the TV. <laughs> Yeah. But there was some good ones. But anyway, great guy. But that's Velzy did his thing. I'm on a motorcycle race in Colorado. This is like 20 years ago now. And we went to a rodeo, and Velzy's at the rodeo. He was a horse guy. He was a cowboy. Yeah. And he was in Colorado. Randomly, he was there. He was there. Wow. I said, Velzy, what the hell are you doing here? I rode in on a motorcycle. He's sitting there with a cowboy hat, cheering the rodeo on. So, so good. <clears throat> So you brought wild. that up, and, and it's so crazy because we talk about it a lot, Jay and I. The, the older generation, you guys were so much more manly and like swashbuckling and... Whoa, 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 whoa. Right? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm being serious. Like, you were divers, you were sailors, oh, yeah, you, you were... did everything. You did everything, and I trip outlet. Why have we grown up in such a... Well, it's way more competitive, and you got to, you know, there's way more rules now than yeah, we had, yeah. and it's just a different world. I mean, it's I'm moving way more faster. Yeah, you know, not buying a sailboat. But do, don't you guys like look? I, I look back at that generation and just oh, yeah. go, "Fuck, man, those guys well, are that's badass." Like, you guys are badass. Yeah, and well, look at you. You're 94, and you're <laughs> still sipping on champagne. Well, it's like Peanuts Larson, <laughs> um, who was kind of my older brother. Uh, and that was a great story that that he said he never worked, never worked in his life, and he always would come down to Laguna. And, and this guy, I, well, this is something you really need to do for history because he was one of the first <laughs> early, early surfers. You know, he was 12 years older than I was, and uh, he always talked like he wa he wanted to be a pilot, the worst way, and he always pretended like he was a pilot, but he didn't pretend. He had little brain had convinced him that he was a pilot. And when you'd see him walking down Forest Avenue in Laguna, you know, like, you'd normally, i see Mark, hey, Mark, how you doing? And uh, Mark's, hey, Dick, hello, you know, and you start talking. And I'd say, hey, Peanuts, how you doing? He'd say, oh, Haleakala, control tower, 6-9, landing on flight two. You know, he's like he's a pilot, and he's landing a plane, and that's the way you talk to him. Well, wait a minute, I want to talk about something. Well, I'm right on the landing. He said, you know, he's talking a whole different way. That's the way he was. So, and he was always so awesome. too, too busy to work. So he lived with a girlfriend, Frances, who was a cocktail waitress at the Crab Catcher in Newport Beach for 50 years. She drove to Laguna every day and worked at that crab catcher and she supported George. He never worked. He never worked. He never worked. Well, one George day, it down. <laughs> one day we were at the liquor store, Hems is working at uh, uh, Broadway Liquor, Gill's Liquor, and Peanuts comes in, he had a Aloha shirt on, and Hems was getting mad at him. They were real good buddies, went to high school together. And Hems said, God damn it, Peanuts, you gotta get a job. And Hems is working at the liquor store and Peanuts grabs the 
collars of his Aloha shirt, and he pulls it apart, and the buttons all spin up, they're all broke off and hitting the bottles. He said, God damn it, hell, I'm too busy to work. <laughs> <laughs> He's winning. <laughs> so, so, I hate to, I want, I mean, we have to ask this because who knows if we can get this chance again, but we know that you were kind of the inspiration for Endless Summer, right? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about well, that? Well, sure. It's easy. You guys mind if we <laughs> dive yeah. into that story? Get comfortable. So, this is it. Okay, so 54, we're here. 55, you know, I'm surfing Tenon Bar, and my dad had a couple of bars in Laguna, and then they took all those houses and buildings out. So he was out. And my dad went in the service, left my mom and I. And my Wait, mom. I'm sorry. They took his business away? Well, like the, the eminent, city eminent? of Laguna condemned everything on the main beach. Eminent domain. Eminent uh, domain? So he lost to create, well, the, to create well, the park. Yeah, it created a park. So the, there was some payoff. I don't know what it was. It wasn't a big deal then. But from the Hotel Laguna to where the lifeguard main office, beach. main office is, not the station, but that was all why we had a dance hall. There was a barber shop, yeah, a donut kennel, all that stuff. Was there. Took yeah. it all out. Gas stations, everything. So Always anyway, fun. my dad was in the military all during the Second War, and then he got divorced or left my mom and got remarried. Anyway, he gets out of the war and he bought a liquor store in Huntington Beach. Now by now I'd been seven years to college. I had. Uh, you know, I went to, I got a master's degree from Mexico City where I went, and another <laughs> went to graduate school. Yeah. Wow. Well, was, I had the GI Bill, and I could live like a king down there. I'm $27 a week. I'm flying to Acapulco every weekend. So I was living large. And uh, so my dad says, well, I bought this liquor store. You think with all your education, you think I could get you to run this liquor store with all your smart? I said, well, you know, I didn't learn a fucking thing. <laughs> I, I sure I mean, learned how to drink. <laughs> I mean, the only reason I went to school is to get laid and go surfing. I went to school. I, I was never, you know, into it. And uh, of course, more books be, books be down. Yeah. <laughs> Tell well, us about I, the pigments. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, so oh, gosh. I got I to gotta get this right. in there, though. This, this happened in about 1951 oh, or so, and Hobie was there. So <clears throat> I must... Southmore, it's the summer between Southmore and junior in college. And I'm down from school, I'm lifeguarding, and those days we lay on the beach and nobody ever would bring a towel. You'd lay on the sand and, you know, it felt good. You'd bring it up, you had to take a leak, you'd pee right in the sand, you know, that was just the way it was. And we'd I sit still do that. In the yeah, yeah. Take a hole. <laughs> so you'd sit in a circle, like this group here, and we'd be in a circle and you'd smooth the sand off and we'd use that for like a chalkboard. And sometimes it'd be serious, sometimes we'd have who's going in the water for, with no wetsuits, so you gotta back in on your hands and knees into the water, and we'd have a little stick in the sand and play all these little games. And sometimes you'd write stuff down on this. So this was a serious day. I said, guys, so I'm older than most of them. I said, guys, uh, I gotta come up with a major. And uh, I have no idea what I wanna be. And uh, so it was Peanuts was there, and Hobie was there. And so Peanuts said, 
Well, you don't want to write a long list of things that you maybe want to do. Engineer, you know, lawyer, doctor, whatever it might be. And you'll have a long list and you check them off. He said, that's too much trouble. He said, what you want to do is make a real short list that things you know you don't ever want to do. <laughs> and so, well, we all looking around at each other and shaking our head. That sounds pretty good, you know. <laughs> so, number one, we think, number one in the sand, number one. And uh, Peanut said, well, for sure, we don't want to ever have to wear or own a coat and tie. And we never had in those I, days. You yeah. didn't have them. So number one, no coat and tie. And I said, well, you know. That eliminates a lot of professions right there. So number yeah. two, I said, well, you know, at Laguna, we didn't have to wear shoes from school. I went barefooted all the time. I don't want to ever have to wear hard leather shoes, you know, those <laughs> real stiff things. So number two, no hard leather shoes. And then we're thinking and thinking, and so what else are you sure you don't want to do? And finally, somebody said, well, for sure, you know, we're laying the main beach. You know, the sand from the ocean to the coast highway is maybe 150 feet or something. Don't want to be on the other side and of the And we aren't going to work on the inland side of the coast <laughs> highway. Amen. For sure. And so then, right away, what can you do? Own you a could, bar. You, yeah. could, you could be a bartender. Yeah. You could make surfboards. You could be a lifeguard, and you could be a fisherman. That's all we could come up with. And to this day, almost everybody in that circle stuck to that. Now, admittedly, the Hobie shops were on the inland side of the highway, but I've never had a coat and tie. I've never had a pair of hard leather shoes, and I don't think Hobie did until way late. He had a tie that had little fish swimming around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little nice. plastic tie. That's a true story. And it's but that, was a, but that, that set our mentality. Yeah. And it really did. And like I say, we pretty much stuck to that. So then I'm at the liquor store, running this liquor store. In Huntington Beach. In Huntington Beach. It's right on the coast highway. So <clears throat> I think... Uh, what's that? What was this? What was it called? What else? Surf Liquors. Surf Liquors. <laughs> Surf Liquor. Surf Liquor. And, uh, Surf Liquor. You brought her. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, the, I had an employee who said, come to work at 9 o'clock. I'd set up the cash register. Surf looks good. It's not blown out early in the morning. I'm going surfing. I got my board in the store. Walk across the highway. Paddle out to the second tee. And I'm in business. 9.30. So the salesmen, now they come in to the liquor store and want to get orders on Smirnoff, Jimmy Beam, whatever you're selling. Every week they come down writing up orders. And so they'd come out, and I told the girl, I said, well, I'm not coming out. Let him walk out on the fucking pier. So <laughs> he would then, I said, raise the flag. We had a little flagpole in the store. So they'd raise the flag when the salesman was there. And pretty soon, he's in a coat and tie, got his briefcase, and he hated coming out on that pier because guys are fishing. There's guts of fish and shit all over the pier. And they're walking out there, and they're real pissed. they got to come all the way to second tee. And they'd yell down, hey, Dick. We got a deal on two cases of Jim Beam. Get a dollar off. Uh, let me get a wave and I'll think about it. I'll take off. <laughs> and I'll tell him back. Okay, I'll have two cases, you know. And then he'd go in. He's all only two cases. And he should have ordered ten cases. So, so was this before? This is Hobie Retail, or no, yes. So there's this store, and Hobie's there. Uh, this is 1955 and 56. So there's three years. And so the first two years, 
I've got a girlfriend, Joyce is her name. We're going to the uh, bullfights in Tijuana on the weekends. We're getting drunk. The store's getting robbed. Got stuck up twice. Got another guy drove in the front door drunk and broke the front door down. I'm in Mexico. I'm somewhere not paying attention. And pretty soon I can't make the mortgage payment. I can't pay Young's Market for all the booze they're shipping. But I did find one trick that, you know, in those days, the, the uh, Dam damage item. The, well, you had a, a, a stamp, a California stamp that came over the top of the mm -hmm. thing. And <clears throat> when they brought in cases, you always bought by the case, occasionally the, the truck, the hand truck that he's doing, he'd break a bottle. And I'd give him the top of the bottle back and they'd give me a new one because the label was still there. Ah, I had discovered a way to. <laughs> take this label, put it in hot water and soak it, and I could slide it off, pour the booze out, put the label back on and put it in the sun and it would dry hard. Then I'd crash the bottle down, break the bottle, call the salesman up, God, I had more breakage this week. Every week I'd have breakage, and I, <laughs> I got a store of going. So the parties going in. Yeah. So I had booze for all the parties, and we're Podcast. we're having parties. It was all free booze. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that was. This working. man is a genius. And so, yeah. <laughs> so all this was scandal. going on, and Hobie was at the party. You know, we're all, mm -hmm. all you know, my guy, all our guys were there. So finally. I'm getting all these calls and my dad's getting pissed because he's getting calls about the mortgage payment. And I fired everybody, put, bought an army cot, put it in the back of the store. I ate bologna sandwiches, three meals a day out of the delicatessen, never left the store for about seven, eight months and trying to get it back. So I didn't have any overhead. I didn't pay myself. I'm sleeping there. Even got a uh, army cot for my girlfriend, so she'd sleep there side by side, two army cots. Hard to do it in an army cot. You know? <laughs> Not a good deal. And so, <clears throat> pretty soon, I'm sick of this thing, but what I'm, I'm there on a rainy day and there's no business especially. I'm reading the Argosy and True Magazine, were men's magazines that were fictional but kind of based on history. It, it would say, on the cover of True, it would say, uh, naked, blonde, uh, Amazons of the Tahiti Islands or something and it'd show a guy uh, diving and stuff and exactly. black pearls and all this stuff and my head's going oh god I gotta, I gotta get, get to Tahiti there. and so finally Disneyland is being built Mm. Uh, and they've, and, you know, the county, there's only so many liquor licenses. They've got to have a liquor license for Disneyland. Well, I've got one right here, baby. It's for sale. Wow. It's a big number. It's a big number now. The only one is for sale. Disneyland bought my liquor license. What? I paid off the mortgage, paid off Young's Market and all the suppliers, told my dad he's out of hock. I had $2,100 left. I said, I'm keeping that. For living and eating bologna sandwiches for seven for months. Seven months. And I'm going on a trip. And I'm taking off. And so I started hitchhiking. I had an apartment in back of the Sandpiper and it took me about two or three months on pouring blanks for Grubby Clark. And I had to go to LA to get uh, medical shots to get a visa. So you had to, to go to India, you had to get a bubonic plague shot, you know, all kinds of weird diseases yeah. for other countries. So I had to get these before I could get the visas because I didn't know where I was going to go. So it took me 
you know, I don't know, two or three months I had to drive to L.A. because you could only get them done at a certain time. At 10 o'clock on Friday, you get bubonic plague. And you had to go to the L.A. Medical Center to do this. So it took me this time. I'm working for Grubby in the meantime and going up there and getting all these shots. Then I get all the visas. And other guys in Laguna, all my buddies were going to go with me. We're all going to go to Tahiti, right? Well, none of them showed up to get their visas, so I knew they couldn't go. Yeah. And I'm going by myself. So I started hitchhiking in front of the Sandpiper, and because I'd been to school in Mexico and I'd surfed all over Guatemala, Costa Rica, I just highballed it to Panama, because in one of these magazines, see, there was no airport in Tahiti. You couldn't fly there. There's no ships that went there for any reason. And the only way you could get there was on a sailboat or, or, uh, France, the, c the country of France, was fighting the French Indochina War, which was later our Vietnam. And they were sending foreign legion troops from Marseille, France, across the Atlantic, through the Panama Canal, and Tahiti was a French possession, so the troop ship would get water and food supplies in Tahiti and go on to Indochina, where these guys were fighting the war. And I read in this magazine that occasionally, if you were there at the right time, you didn't know when the ships would come, you heck? could buy your food on a troop ship. Now, this is not a luxury liner, a troop ship. And it cost me 70 I get to Panama, and I go right to the French embassy, and the guy said, well, in fact, uh, our records indicate there's a troop ship that'll be here in about two weeks. So I stayed in a whorehouse in Panama for two weeks <laughs> and waited no for the advice. troop ship, and it's in the canal, and the ambassador got me. I paid $70 for food because I had to buy my food on this ship. I'm in a hammock. I couldn't even come on deck. And all the troops were down in the hole. This is a freighter. There's no cabins or anything. We're in hammocks. I got pictures of all this. And these are all black tr uh, foreign legion troops from Africa that the German officers in the Second World War, the SS officers that didn't go to prison, they could change their identity by becoming a French Foreign Legion troop. You're there's the French Army, me. and then there's the French Foreign Legion. The French Foreign Legion gives you a new identity, and you get a new name, new address, new everything. So if you were a bad guy for any reason, you wanted to get away. French Foreign, foreign Legion. Legion. And so the wow. German... Uh, Gestapo officers were the white officers in charge of all these black troops that they brought from uh, Nigeria and Ghana and all the French possessions. Wow. So they put me in a hammock down in the hole with all these guys eating oatmeal and cabbage and all the wine you could drink for 17 days. Gotta love the French. And wine. <laughs> all the wine. They had the wine. <laughs> Take French bread. What? what? And how long was that how, boat boat ride? Seventeen days. Seventeen days. Did you ever like get scared? Yeah, I'm like you can't fucking scared every day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like, but it didn't like, matter. Oh think gosh. about okay, you're probably how old then? then Twenty I was something. Thirty one. Thirty one. And you you find out that you can get on a ship in Panama, in the Suez Canal. Right. Right. No, not the Suez. Panama, Panama Canal. Panama Canal. Sorry. Panama Canal, and you're not knowing like what I have what's going to happen no. or what who who's going to be on the boat. You're finding all this out, and there's no backing out. Like oh, you're in there, and yeah. you're traveling with a board. No, I didn't no. take a board. I couldn't because I'm hitchhiking, 
And I you hitchhiked from California yeah, to Panama. 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 Yeah. How many days? How many? Oh, I don't know. Just these six fucking weeks. gnarly. <laughs> yeah, a couple months. Gnarly. Yeah, a couple months. I got you know some rides on. You get rides mostly on trucks, and uh, but you know other guys would pick you up, take you forty miles or something. And I jumped trains a couple of times, slept in a box car stuff. What did you travel with? I had a rucksack. I had an army blanket, a poncho, a pair of Levi's, a couple of sweatshirts, shorts, and uh, sandals. And that was it. <laughs> so incredible! So, and did but, they have like Western Union? How did you get money? Or you just no? I don't, that was it. So, but but I got a backup to fill in a couple of loose ends there. Uh, so I <laughs> talked about Peanuts Larson. Yeah. And earlier, Peanuts. so I'm at the liquor Peanuts. store, and Peanuts hmm? wants to go yes. to Tahiti in the worst way. He went to Newport, Marina del Rey, trying to find a boat, and finally got one. And he told Francis, his girlfriend, one morning. They were leaving at four in the afternoon. He said to Francis, I've got to go shopping today. I'm going to buy a loaf of bread. And Francis goes off to the crab catcher to work. She comes home, and he isn't there. And he didn't bring the bread and didn't come home that night. No notes, no anything. He gets on the boat, goes to Tahiti. Uh, he didn't know that I'm... He, he couldn't know any of this. I'm not writing. Nobody's writing him. And he's in Tahiti. and So he found an easy way... Well, he got there on a ship out of, out of Newport. <laughs> and I didn't know, we didn't know, we knew that he wanted to go. We didn't know what boat he was on. Did he go to Honolulu? Where did he go? We didn't know. There's no... Why did you think of that? Well, I did, but I couldn't find one. Okay. I, I tried it. But okay. no, no luck. You so, went the hard way. So I'm getting in Tahiti in the morning after 17 days. We were sun up. The sun's just coming over the mountain. Can I ask you, what was it like on the boat? Were these guys oh, it's nice ugly. to you? Were they? No. And no. They, <laughs> Did you get in fights? Yeah. Like, and the two guys got stabbed. Oh, so gosh. Well, they're, these are guys that are French Foreign Legion. First off, they're all bad guys to yeah. begin with. You wouldn't be in the Foreign Legion. They're going to Vietnam. They're sitting down there drinking wine all day. And they all got, they don't have their guns with them. They're all in uniform, you know, fatigues and stuff. And they're sharpening their knives. They got a knife in their boot and they got a knife in their back pocket. And they'd put a target up on the side of the ship and they'd sit back there and throw on knives because they were all practicing throwing knives. And every time a guy would go up to get his knife, they'd try and shoot him in the back. Two oh. guys got nailed right in the back. I saw them pulling knives out of the back. Oh my gosh. So I'm not playing the knife game. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm Stay staying out. in my hammock. That's where I'm, my only safe place. They're working on their Vegas show. <laughs> Stay a spectator. 17 days wow. so, on the ship. On that ship. So in the morning, we get to Tahiti, and <clears throat> I, I have a, a visa for Tahiti, and I got all my paperwork, and the guy, the captain, knew that. There's no passengers on this, and so we tie up right at the dock, uh, you've probably never heard of it because you're too young. The most famous bar in all the South Seas, all over the South Seas, a place called Quinn's Bar. It's the wildest, nastiest, dirtiest bar that there. And Sounds all awesome. these little <laughs> islands all over Indonesia, Micronesia, Philippines. Quinn's is the worst. The absolute end of the world. The best of the worst. Yeah. And okay. I was tying up right in front of that. And so as they're getting the gangplank and still throwing the hawsers over the teals, <clears throat> I'm there and there's boat day in Tahiti is a big day because there's no airport, there's no regular ships to call. So here's all the chicks, all the guys coming boat day in Papietti. 
and I'm looking over and uh, you know waiting for them to get everything so I could get off the ship and all of a sudden in this crowd I hear or <laughs> it's peanuts. No way. <laughs> On top of a 55-gallon oil he, drum. He saw you. No, he didn't no. see me. But he had... He knew. He Well, he knew I was trying to get there. I think he had been to every ship for the last six months. and But he knew if I was there, I would reckon. And so I finally I see him, and I go, oh, oh, back again like the seal call. That's the way <laughs> we would communicate. Yeah. And so then he, he gets off. I have pictures of this. So he oh gets off gosh. the... The I uh, the uh, drum of gasoline walks down. He knows the mayor of Papietti. I have a picture of him grabbing the mayor by one arm and the police chief on the other. They come right at the bottom of the ship, and all of a sudden the captain say, "Monsieur Metz, first one off the ship." And so the mayor and the police chief had signed the papers, and I come off the ship, and Peanuts takes me right into Quinn's bar. He was right there. It was from here to where my car is out there. Oh and so you cool. want to know about Quinn's. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. No. All right, brother. We got to take a little short take a break. break. I got yeah. Valentine's. Uh... <laughs> well, Quinn's bar is, you know, a thatched roof. I got pictures of it. Um, there's a big stage. There's music. The chicks. See, you know, in Tahiti, and that's why I wanted to go there, girls are naked. When I grew up, now you can go to the main beach in Laguna and see half of them are naked anyway. You know, they've got a string bikini and that's about it. Well, when I was going to school, they were in a one-piece, you know, almost yeah. a dress to go to the beach at. So there was no skin. And so, you know, guy, the young guy, he's got a thing, he's got stuff to do. So... Uh, so anyway, I wanted to go to Tahiti and see naked women, and uh, that's where they were. They weren't here. And the waves. And the waves. Well, we didn't. That was secondary in Tahiti. <laughs> <coughs> so you go into this bar, and right away they start drinking Hinano, which is the, the local beer. And uh, so I'm having a couple of beers. <clears throat> Peanuts knows everybody, and we're having fun and laughing and everything. And I got to take a leak after a while, and I see you know you can always tell kind of where it's at. There was a little. Uh, beads hanging down and a door not a doorway but a doorway there and so I figured okay that's where the head is so I go back there and I'm looking for a wahini and a guy but it's not it's just one and you walk in and it's a room about half the size and it's not this long but about this size and it's <clears throat> tile there's no toilets there's no urinals there's no anything it's just all tile and on the floor there's a metal grid over the tile floor and down in that corner, there's a drain. Just and in this slightly corner, slope? Yeah, it's slope. In this corner right here, there's a Chinese guy sitting on a box, a wooden box with a hose, and he squirts everything down to that end. <laughs> and so whatever it is. And so, uh, you know, I walk in there, and so you got to be cool, right? You don't want to blow who you, you're a tourist or something. And uh, <clears throat> so you go in there, and you just stand in the middle. There's no specific place where you're supposed to pee. So, you know, you get ready and you let her, let her go. And uh, the Tahitian girls, they've got a great sense of humor. I mean, they think it's really neat. So they can tell a new guy in town, a howly guy. And so they follow you in the bathroom and they're squatting down beside you and they're pinching your butt. By the time you get your unit out, you're trying to do some work and they keep pinching you and they're laughing. They think it's so good. And you're trying to get a squirt out and then they pinch you again. They grab your unit and they, you know, it's just, 
you're trying to get get the done thing Gosh. done, and, and they're they're just peeing right on their feet or anything. They don't care. Just all going down there with hoses. So that if there's really a tourist in there, they, I've seen them just walk out. So they can't they can't do anything. Yeah, they you know? can't handle it. And so that was my first hour or two at Quinn's Bar was learning how to handle the. The, the head in there it was a whole different world <laughs> now how Gosh. long it was peanuts there before you <clears throat> well he'd been there like three or four or five months he'd oh, been there a shit. long time because he couldn't leave there's no way to leave you couldn't get there you can't leave did, so, he, did he bring a board no he didn't bring he, you know it's too hard to hitchhike or move around with a yeah. board so I always felt I could make boards one way or another along the way and in Australia well before I left Laguna there were five, so I decided there were five places I wanted to go. So, you know, I'm thinking, what, where am I going to go? I knew I'm going to go someplace. What do I want to go the most? Okay, I want to go to Tahiti and see naked girls and the South Seas yeah. and, you know, surf and all the rest of it. I wanted to go to Australia because I knew there was surf in Australia. Uh, <clears throat> so that was a no-brainer. I wanted to go to Africa and see wild tribes and wild animals and all that. I wanted to go the, I ran the hurdles in college and was, I was seventh in the nation. I almost made the Olympic team. Wow. So <clears throat> I wanted to run, go to the- <laughs> Just throw that in. Just add that in. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah. I was, I was yeah. the best runner in my high school. <laughs> so I wanted to, the coach of the American Olympic team was my track coach in college. So he said, in those days, it was before Munich, so there wasn't big security. And he said, you know, if you get to Rome, where it was in 1960, uh, I can get you in the games and everything. So I had uh, Tahiti, Australia, Australia, I wanted to go uh, f to surf. I wanted to go to Africa. I wanted to see the Olympic Games in Rome in 1960. <clears throat> and I wanted to run with the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. Wow. Those were my four, five things that I wanted to do. I had no idea how I was going to get to any of them. I had $2,100 that I got from the after Disney yeah. bought the that's thing. a lot of money well back then. It, it was but you know I well I I spent the $2,100 took me three years I used the $2,100 it lasted you three years I bought a new Volkswagen in Germany and got home with 150 bucks wow. <laughs> did you work any jobs during yeah that? yeah so you're working I while worked, you're traveling and, and, and I, did, I never flew any place I got jobs on ships uh, so I didn't pay for anything that I'd get. I never stayed in a hotel. I slept out all the time. But every now and then I'd, I'd make a deal with a hotel guy that had a bar. I'd say, well, I'll tend bar for a couple of meals in a hotel room. So I'd get a shower and stuff. And so American, ten bar in Africa or Australia, it was something new. Yeah. It didn't cost them anything, really. A meal. Uh, Do you ever so, get crazy like sickness at any of these places? Like, oh, I got yeah, I got amoebic dysentery. I, I pooped all over a bus one time. The guy stopped the bus. They threw <laughs> me out, out in the dirt, and oh, a bunch of this is in Turkey, and a bunch of women came out, and they're so caring. You know, I shit in my <clears> pants. <throat> I just you know had dysentery, and they pulled my pants off and wiping me all off and cleaning me up, put me back in the bus and said, okay, you driver, away we go again. Wow. I mean, you know, amazing stuff happens to you. So when, how yeah. long were you in um, Tahiti for? About three months. Okay. 
And did you get some good waves, or did well, you ever get the surf? That, well, in those days, we didn't go to, to you know, where they surf it now. That was impossible. Papete but, was just the beach. But we did, you know, in and outs where they surfed in and outs, yeah. surfed there. But it, Tahiti was more girls. That was, there wasn't that, and I didn't have a really good board, and so Tahiti wasn't, a, it was more a chick thing. So yeah. it was either going to be chicks or surf, one yeah. or the other. So from there to Australia? No, so then I got, and that was pretty interesting, so how to get out of there. And there was another American that, his name was David Topper. He was uh, grew up in Beverly Hills, a real rich family, and his, he graduated from high school, and they bought him a ticket on the Matsonia around the Pacific Ocean for graduation. And they went from L.A. to Tahiti, no, to L.A. to Honolulu to Tahiti, and then a couple other islands to Australia. Is this like a yacht or cruise ship? No, it's ship? a cruise ship. Okay. And uh, he got off in Tahiti, and the boat sailed on, but then he couldn't get out of there. And he was dying, because he wasn't surfer, he was just kind of a guy who wanted to see stuff. He liked some girls, so he was there for a while, but he was dying to get out of there, and so... He and I became friends. You know, he's from Beverly Hills. I'm from Laguna, and we're talking, and uh, you know, having beers every day at Quinn's, and it's right at the dock, so you're right there where, where sailboats would come in, and occasionally a big merchant ship or whatever would come in. And so uh, one day, a Norwegian tramp steamer came in with a load of copra, which is coconuts that they take to Australia and make soap out of. Hmm. So uh, it's tied up there. And uh, so somebody said, well, that Norwegian ship is going to Australia. And so Topper, David Topper says, well, I wonder, I'll buy passage on that, go to Australia, and then I can fly home from Australia. Couldn't fly from any of the other places. Yeah. So, you know, he was a guy from Beverly Hills. And this is the difference of how I grew up and how he grew up. He went up, and there's the gangways down there, and the first mate... Uh, you know, there's three mates that run three different ships. I don't know if you're aware of all that. So the first mate is the end of the gangway, and he's, uh, you know, so anybody can't come on ship, and they're getting supplies and stuff. And so Topper went over and said, uh, I want to buy a ticket on your ship to uh, Australia. Here, you're going to Australia. The guy says, well, we don't take passengers. This is a freighter, and there's no room for passengers, and sorry, can't do it. And so Topper comes back, and we're sitting there, a couple of Tahitian guys I knew and some chicks and, uh, having a beer, and we're laughing because he's, uh, I'm watching him because I know he's going to screw it up. You know, he was a city guy. He didn't, yeah. he didn't know people. He didn't, he didn't know, know how to, how to people. He didn't and know how to so barter. He comes yeah. down and sits down and he said, oh, yeah, I guess I'm going to be here another month or so. And I said, I'll bet you right now $100 I can get a job on that ship. And we said, well, no way. I just got turned out. Well, I said, bet me then 100 bucks. And uh, so he had money, and he had a $100 bill. And I said, just give me the 100 now. If I don't make it, I'll pay my monies and traveler's check. So I went up to my, uh, where I was sleeping. I had my little rucksack, and I get my passport and visa. And I have a visa for Australia. So I put the $100 bill on my passport, and I go up <laughs> to the same guy he had seen, the first mate, and I said, uh, I know this is a working ship, and I, I really need to get to Australia. I'm a good worker. I'll, you know, work on any shift. And I open up, I have a visa for Australia. I open up with a $100 bill, and he's supposed to take the $100 bill. And he looks at me, and he said, you really want to go, don't you? I said, I'm planning to get on this ship. He leaves at four. I'm ready to go. Here's my gear. 
And he said, well, put that hundred away and stow your gear. You're on board. Come at four. Dude. Wow. <laughs> and I said. Uh, Turned around and went. And so, no. so right away I said, you know, I've got a friend that's a pretty good worker. Uh, any chance of getting another guy? He said, well, it won't cost us anything but food. So, yeah, bring him along. So I went back over to Topper. I said, Topper, I'll bet you a hundred bucks. I, I, I can get you on that ship. He said, well, I just got turned out. Well, bet me. Okay, I'll bet you 100 And I already got 100 from him because I'm on. <laughs> now I bet another 100 So I, keeps going. I got 200 bucks. I'm on the way to Australia when Topper's with me. So I got an extra 200 So, you know, that's the way it goes. So he's working chipping paint, and I got to know the first mate. And I figured out right away that the first mate is the best uh, uh, time period so the first mate works from four in the morning till eight in the morning and he works from four in the afternoon to eight at night so you get a full night's sleep till four in the morning eight you know you can sleep all night you get all day off so if you're on the second mate or the third mate you're in the middle of the night the middle of the day and so i told the first mate i said yeah i'm really a good worker i've been sailing a lot uh, and so he make, said, well, you come up on the bridge, we'll make you a helmsman and a lookout on the bridge. So I start talking to the captain, and he's on the bridge, of course, and I get to know him. And so I eat with the captain because he wants to learn English. He said, my English isn't so He can speak English, but not real good. And so I said, you eat with us three meals a day, and I'll practice my English. That was fine with me. So now I'm Better in with the food. captain. Better <laughs> food. with the yeah. captain. And so, you know, after I'd been on, so we went to the Samoa, Pango Pango, New Hebrides, New Caledonia, Fiji, uh, all across the South Pacific. And uh, finally get to Australia. But before we get there, I'm pretty buddies with the, kip, the skipper. Yeah. And I said, Captain, would, uh, you know, I'm going to get off in Australia. Would you write me a letter of recommendation? And he said, well, you know, my English has gotten better. But he said, I don't write it very good. He <laughs> said, I'll give you stationery. And if you write the letter, I'll stamp it and sign it. On the, it was the, the Thorzile was the name of the ship. And so I wrote a fucking letter that would think I was the greatest <laughs> sailor that ever hit the seven seas. Why wouldn't you? Why <laughs> wouldn't you? Said, and I still have a letter. Captain Salem was his name. Oh, and he yeah. signs my letter. And uh, so I put that in my gear. And so I'm in Australia for four or five months. And I'm looking for other ships from Norway. So I'm going to go to Singapore, get out when I'm ready to go up the Northwest Passage through the Great Barrier Reef. So I walked down to look in the paper, and here's an, another Norwegian ship. And I <clears throat> went, said, I need to see the captain. I, showed, I, had a, I said, I have some mail for the captain. So they let me on board. I showed him the letter. I said, oh, Captain Salem. He said, hell, we went to school together to learn to be navigators. I've known him for 40 years. Come aboard. No problem. <laughs> yeah, if you're good for Captain Salem, you're good with me. So I got letters. Three rides now, and, and you're getting a good job. Yeah. You're teaching them English. You got good food. You're, it's like first class. <laughs> I, I, yeah, well, why isn't there... A Dick Metz fucking movie. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. Well, yeah. well there kind of is a little sharp. There is. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I got three or four letters. What, what happened to Peanuts? Well, Peanuts went home on a sailboat okay. eventually, and Topper got off in Australia and flew home. Okay. And, uh, you just and kept I've seen going. The, well, Topper is a waiter in Maui. So uh, 10 years after I got home, I'm in Maui, and he was waiting at Chemo's. Chemo's. <laughs> yeah. 
such a small world. We we always say that like surfers are such you know travelers and nomadic oh, yeah. and nomadic. Yeah, we. But this guy no started all that. I'm just saying you, you, you run into people and then they come back in your lives yeah. like all the time. Yeah, right? it's just when you travel and, and you meet so many interesting people, it's just because like how I many mean, times have you mentioned you're 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 meet, re meeting these people? Yeah, endless oh, yeah. summer is what sparked the nomadic surf travel. Oh, no question about it. Right? Like, and well, that see, was because of your... Yeah, well, see, on this trip experience. that I'm on, so eventually I get to Australia, I get on another ship from uh, uh, Sydney to Singapore, and I hitchhike from Singapore up the Malay Peninsula through uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Burma, India, and I get to Bombay, India, and I get on another ship uh, going to the Seychelles Islands, Zanzibar, and Mombasa, which is a, a port on the East Africa side. So I, that's how I got there. I never paid for any of the ships. I worked on all You have a map? Like, how do you, you, are you jotting this, like... Well, I know. I can give you a map. I mean, I know it backwards and forwards. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> If, if you're you're hitchhiking, you're like, okay, next town. Okay, where do I go from there? Like, well, you, I had maps. I knew yeah. where I was going. You know, pretty. I, I've got to get to. You know, I, I went so Tahiti. I got there South Seas. Then I got oh, to yeah. Australia. So there's two down, three to go. I get to Africa, Mombasa. Uh, I hitchhiked from Mombasa to Nairobi, and I stayed in the YMCA two nights in Nairobi. And I got a job working for a safari company that was going out in the Serengeti Plains because I wanted to see the animals and different tribes. So I got a job doing that, putting up tents for rich Americans that are coming over there going on safari. And so I was out in the wilds of Africa for, well, I was in Africa for, I don't know, almost a year. Wow. And I hitchhiked all over Africa. So I worked in... Uh, a little town of Arusha. Well, there's a whole lot of stories. I was on the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro. I was working on a German farm, a block house. It was made out of cement block, no glass in the windows, and the windows were little big as two of those, but not quite that high, about where the first top row of fins is, and no glass on it. And they had two, I've got pictures of these two. Uh, Belgian Shepherd dogs. They weighed about 120 pounds a piece, and I'm playing with them. And I worked on this French and would take the dogs, and I'd go out with a black guy to, uh, that was monitoring how these herds migrate and move around. We'd count how many were in them, and so I'd see rhinos and out in the middle of the jungle with him, and wow. I'd come back to this farm. And one night, a leopard came in that window, grabbed the, killed those two dogs took them both back out the window, and the remains were on the outside of the window the next day. I sleeping in the room next to it, never heard a peep. Wow. And we found all the remains the next day. So stuff like this is going on, you know, all the time. Yeah. I got rides that I could tell you about were unbelievable. Uh, and I watched them burn two white guys at the stake. The Maasai warriors, ever heard of Maasai? The meanest fucking warriors in the world. Wow. Toughest guy as well. So it was during the Kenya. So see, all the African countries were colonial colonies of European English. countries. Yeah. So England owned Kenya. Uh, Tanganyika was owned by Germany. The Belgian Congo was owned by the Belgian Congo or Belgium. Uh, so all these 
countries were colonies and they were all controlled by the people in those countries. So they'd send English guys to Nairobi to run the country, to run the railroads and run the stuff because the black guys didn't know how to do any of that. They started educating them. So the black guys are going on revolt. They want their independence, like their civil war. So they start killing all the farmers, the English farmers that migrated to Kenya. They're going in the night and lopping their heads off and just big civil war. So all the black guys were killing all the white guys. The white guys couldn't stay in a ranch because they'd come out in the ranch and kill their wives and kids and everything. So they all came in in Nairobi and I'm walking around by now. My hair's longer than yours. This is before hippies, before beatniks. Beatniks were before hippies. This is before beatniks. So I had hair down longer than yours. I hadn't shaved for a year, hadn't had a haircut for two years or whatever it was. And I had a torn Aloha shirt. It's kind of ripped up. I had a pair of shorts that had a couple of holes in them. But the big thing I had on were sandals made in Nicaragua out of tires and all the black guys are wearing sandals made out of tires and they're killing all these white guys and every time a black guy would see me at downtown or where I would be out working on safari they don't clap like we do with two open hands they double up a fist and they get a little music going, a little, not music, but they get little the rhythm going. Rhythm. And they go, hunga bunga boo. And they go look at my feet and they go, my shoes and look at theirs. We both had the same kind of tire sandals. So you and, were accepted by them well, because I, of your it was partly, sandals. Now, the other thing, white guys in all these colonies, they're the controlling, they're all in white shorts, white stockings to their knees, white buck Very, shoes, yeah. a white pith helmet, and, and that's what a white guy was to them. I w- didn't really fit in that bracket, but I really wasn't a black guy either, but I get pretty dark. Yeah. And, you know, I got a beard, I got long hair, yeah. and I got the sandals. So they were uncertain kind of where I fit in this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. But they always clap, uh, like they do, and they get this little rhythm going. And then <clears throat> a lot of times I'd be on a little boat going across a lake or and it would have a V8 Ford engine uh, driving the boat. And it was just an open the engine was right there. Said Ford, USA. And I would go, USA, USA. And I'd start clapping. And they go, USA. The, board, the engine's running good. They like that because they just depend on And they, they get the rhythm going, we're all buddies now. USA, USA bunga boo. You know, and that's the way we did. So I'd get, get going with them and I want to ride a, yeah, I'm going to Andola. Oh, and then they'd tell me in sign language, a cotton truck tomorrow morning, I get you on. So I'd ride on a cotton truck to the next town. You know, it's just the way it went. But yeah. you, you, you got to play their game. You know, if I was trying to be a white guy and staying in a hotel, they would have probably beheaded me. Yeah. Or, you know, I wouldn't yeah, you're there to control them yeah. or be work for some big government. Yeah, or. well, you know, so they didn't know who I was, but <clears> I was <throat> there when they, I don't know if you remember all this stuff, but Lumumba was the first president of the Belgian Congo, a black guy. And I saw him behead him in the town of Elizabethville. Because uh, all these tribes, you know, if one tribe gets this, then the other tribe is pissed off, and so they have a war going on. So Lumumba was the president, and he came out in a suit, 
and then a coat and tie, and then he had a leopard skin over his head and over the back of himself, and they started rioting and lopped his head off, and I was under a, in a, a, a hotel at Elizabethville under the table, and they took the a school bus, I have a picture of it driving up the main street throwing Molotov cocktails at our hotel where I was under the table Ace. drinking elephant beer. We're all down there and all the beers are named, you know, different animal names. Lion beer, elephant beer. Why did you stay there for so long? Well, it was exciting. And, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I would lived with the pygmies and I've got... Did you, did you bring... Well, I mean, I can show you some yeah. of these. You you mentioned you brought your camera. Did you take uh, journal notes as well? No. Yeah, that's it. Uh, He's got a computer mind. I was just going to say, like, it's all on the But, you know, I I had a little 35 milli camera. But in those days, you know, it wasn't very good. And uh, so so you stayed there for a freaking year. Well, I was in Africa, but Africa is four times bigger than the United States. So think how big it is from here to New York. Yeah. That's how, from Nairobi to Cape Town. It's twice that far. And you never, like, felt like, shit, I got to get out of here oh, with yeah. all these people well, no, dying? You no, know, you wig out all the time. And, you know, it's lonely. <laughs> I mean, you're by yourself. Uh, you're scared shitless. I'm sleeping out one morning. I wake up, and there's a lion and his whole pride about... You know, 50 feet away, they're sleeping there. They'd eaten that day. When they're hungry, they're eating, they're not hungry for a couple of days. I mean, he could have had me for dinner. But I didn't know he was there. He didn't know I was there. I didn't care. <laughs> but, you know, it's stuff like that every day. It was, it was scary. Here, that's a picture of the United States in Inside Africa. Africa. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's they, wild. Oh, yeah, shit. Okay, so back to surfing. Did you do any surfing over there? You did? Oh, yeah. Okay. Sure. Because that's where you guys found Cape well, St. Francis, right? I, well, I surfed all over Australia. Curl, curl, freshy, you know, uh, all the spots there. I lived with uh, a guy named Skipper Williams, and he was a hot surfer in Australia. So he took me around. We surfed. I lived with him, paid him uh, a little, I'd buy him wine. And the Australians can really drink. I thought I was okay. Yeah. <laughs> they can fucking drink me under the bar, man. Those guys are unbelievable. It's kind of like, a, yeah, like their pride. They, yeah, they, they, love they, they love it. So, but, but in Africa, you guys discovered well, Cape St. Francis. Well, when I got... So this is what I was going to show you if I find some of these pictures. And for the people that do listen to this that well, haven't I, seen Well, this summer. is what happened. This is what makes it unique. So... I get a ride in the town of Arusha. Now, Africa, not so much now, but this is 1958. There is only one road. It's called the Great North Road. And I was going to show you a picture of the Great North Road if I can find it real quick. It's all, there's no bridges across any of the rivers. You got to ford them or ferry your car across. You have to carry all your gas, all your food. There's no gas stations. Uh, for a thousand miles so I get in a truck and the guy's got a 55 gallon oil drum filled with gasoline that we siphon from the 55 gallon oil drum into the gas tank so you know we get 200 miles out of the gas tank then you siphon stop the car and that's the way you go you got to carry all your own food there's nothing out there Uh, so radical the adventures and 
all the crazy things that can go wrong that didn't go wrong. Oh, here's Quim's bar. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we're gonna. Yeah, I need. To, I need all these bar. photos. That's pretty around. awesome. Yeah. So amazing. So tell us about. Oh, gosh, about that. Okay, so I, I'm in Arusha, <clears throat> and I get a ride, and the guy says, "Where you, where you want to go?" And I said, I want to go to Victoria Falls. Awesome. That was about 2,000 miles. It'd be like going from here to New Orleans or something. And he said, great, I'm going right through there. Uh, and you can help me drive. I'm going all the way. My mom is in the hospital, and I need to go see her. So, well, two hours, I'll drive two hours. You can sleep, then you drive, and I'll sleep. So we did this around the clock. Gas and food we ate out of the car. He had I had some food when I ever when I'd go hitchhiking I always carried food with me. See they make peanut butter all over Africa, and so I'd get big quart jars of peanut butter and three or four loaves of French bread and put in my rucksack. So I'd have peanut butter three meals a day just eating bread and peanut butter. Uh, so I had food. He had more, and. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, I could show you thousands of pictures, but yeah. uh, I won't, but uh, I'll show you. So here I lived with the pygmies in the Aturi forest. What the heck? <laughs> it's incredible. That's just, how did he find that? Real pygmies, Lar. He's not, he hasn't. <laughs> ready to go. That's... I mean, you, you said you traveled a yeah. crappy little camera. Those pictures are, are pretty amazing. Well, like, it's yeah. amazing. Kodachrome. Yeah. And those pictures are from 1960. Yeah. Wow. They're 46, 70 years old. Almost over, over. That's as good as digital now. Yeah. So, so take us to Cape St. Francis. <laughs> See, I mean, I got all kinds of pictures. Here's a, here's a truck I traveled across the Sahara Desert on. That's me with a white towel around my head as a turban. <laughs> so amazing. I love wow. It. I love it. So, so I get, so this guy, we're in the truck, we're driving for 10 days, around the clock. We get to Victoria Falls in the middle of the night, and he's driving. He punches me, and he says, we're at Victoria Falls. And it's like three in the morning, and I look out the window, I kind of wake up, look out the window. There's no gas station, there's no hotel, there's no houses, there's no anything there, except two little huts and a kind of the embers of a fire that was burning, burnt out. And I said to him, I said, where'd you say you're going? He said, I'm going another 3,000 miles to Cape Town. I said, I can see fucking Victoria Falls anytime. I'm staying. I didn't want to get out of the car. Yeah. If it had been in the daytime, I would have got out in a minute. But at two in the morning, you don't know what's around there. Yeah. There's nobody to say, hey, I'm here. Let me come in the house or something. So he said, okay, we'll go. So we kept on driving. We get to Cape Town. A couple of weeks later, I don't know, a couple of weeks, but 10 days, whatever it was. And uh, he said, I'm going to turn left. It's a big city, Cape Town. I'm going to turn left and go to the Groot Cheer Hospital where his mom was staying. And I said, well, I'll get off at the next corner. I'm going, I can see the ocean two blocks away. And so last time I ever saw him, I don't remember his name. And you know, he's gone, I'm gone. I go right, he goes left. I walk down on the beach and that's where I see a guy on what he thought was a surfboard 
and he's floundering around in a kind of bunch of rocks and seaweed. It's kind of looked like Laguna, a little sandy beach, and then a rocky cove, and then Kelpie more, dark. a lot of kelp around. And uh, so I go down there, and I got a Tahitian hat. I mean, I should have some pictures of it, but uh, with beads on it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I got awesome. a bunch of these pictures. And the sandals. And so. I walked down there. He loses his Dude, board. I'm a fucking surfer. <laughs> and, and it washes up. But it's not a surfboard, really. And I go down and pick it up because it's right in the rocks. And he's kind of crawling and swimming over the rocks. It was two feet of water and kelp and stuff, so it wasn't scratching him. And uh, oh, he kind of comes up, and he's looking at me, and I said, this is the ugliest surfboard I've ever seen. And he got real indignant. He says, well, what do you know about surfboarding? I said, well, I don't know much, but if you made this ugly sucker, I know more than you know. <laughs> and I was trying to get him to laugh right off a little the bat. bit. Yeah. And he got pissed off, you know. And he said, well, you talk funny. Where are you from? I said, well, I'm living, living in Hawaii in California. Oh, my God, he says. And he's speaking Afrikaans and half English, and I don't know what the hell he's saying. And uh, he said, my God, you know, you got to come home with me. You mean, you know about surfing? And I said, well, I know a little bit. And, uh, so, God, he puts me in the Volkswagen combi he had. And uh, I, we start talking. He could talk English, but he, Afrikaans was the main language. But he was an English, he'd born in Africa, but from English parents. So he knew English, but they all spoke Afrikaans in those days. So he said, you got to come home with me. So, okay, well, I've got my rucksack ready to go anywhere. And uh, we go home. And before we get there, it's a little dirt road. And he's leaning out the window. He's calling to his wife. Thelma, Thelma, call the mates. We're having a braai. And he's saying this half an I don't know, braai, mates, and shit. I don't know what he's talking about. In about 10 minutes, there's like 15 guys and seven or eight good-looking girls in bikinis. And I'm like, holy shit. Now, listen. <laughs> now it's happening. <laughs> I'm back in Laguna. I know more about that than I do surfing, actually. <laughs> and so. You've been to Tahiti, bro? <laughs> so, and I'm going to show you a picture. Of Dude. This is you, so. You <laughs> insult the guy on his board, and he invites you to his house, <laughs> and you're in Nirvana. I mean, when you're halfway around the world, people are like, "How the fuck did you get here? What are you doing here? I gotta talk to you." For what a do you bit. know Let's about surfing? What do you know about surfing? I know a little bit about surfing. Well, Come on with you. me. So wait to see Patty. So all these people come down. They start. What they call a bri barbecue, and they bring steaks and they got sausage and they start cooking. They got half gallon bottles of wine, and uh, I missed it somewhere up here. There, I got a lot of pictures of Hobie I could show you, but we're not talking about him. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, we start cooking. I've, I mean, I've been out in the jungle for six months I hadn't seen a white girl I mean I hadn't had anything to drink started drinking this wine I'm getting shit faced all these chicks are there and I, I'm putting moves on them and they think it's really neat because you know they some, got a different accent I look different I dress different and so the chicks are in around you know what, yeah. who are you where are you from they want to know all this stuff and uh, so yeah, I want to know about them international man of mystery and uh, it <laughs> Uh, it's got to be right in here somewhere. So he pretty much threw you a, a so, welcoming barbecue yeah. party. So I, I got so drunk. I th here she is. So here's Patty. That's Cape Town in the background. She's a model in Cape Town. She's 17 years old. 
and I'm 31. <laughs> That's Patty. And this. That's Patty. <laughs> Oh, she was way taller than you. That's a good move. <laughs> so she, she was, well, here I'm showing you You got a bunch of pictures of her, of course. <laughs> she's a model, dude. Yeah. yeah. Well, here we are. Her job. Here, can you she's model for me? I brought my, uh, my camera. Yeah. That's a hat I wore all over Africa. And we were surfing in Cape Town. And I'm giving the camera the finger, but dude. nobody sees that. <laughs> <laughs> so I get drunk. Yeah, I fall in love with Patty. I get so drunk, he left me sleep in the van that night. And uh, uh, so, John Whitmore, you've heard of him. So that's, this is John Whitmore. His wife is Thelma. Patty is his wife's little sister. And so <clears throat> I'm in love with her. She's kind of in love with me. And John and Thelma, and I'm, he's a used car salesman. He's selling used cars. In Africa. Yeah, he's hardly making a living. And in his little house he's got, he's got two bedrooms. He and his wife and two little daughters that are five, six years old are in one bedroom. The other bedroom is Patty and her mother uh, in the other bedroom. Their brother, Earl, is in the garage, and I'm sleeping on the couch. And so I'm trying to figure out how to get Patty out of the bedroom with her mom onto the couch in the living room. And so we're sneaking around. And... So John and Thelma got the romance going, So every, but the mom is there. And so every weekend, Friday, John would get off work from selling used cars. We'd get in the combi, and we'd go on a surf trip. So Patty and I and John and Thelma. So then we could get away from Mama, and so we'd, have our, we'd go surf and camp and have some fun. So we did that every weekend. So I lived there with them for seven months. Wow. And told him... All about Hobie, Bruce Brown, you know, the whole California surf scene, Hawaii. I mean, he just absorbed all this stuff. And uh, so finally, I say, John, I got, I got to leave. He wants me to marry Patty and stay there and make surfboards. So we talked about this, but he did, there's no material. There's no balsa wood, there's no foam, there's no resin, there's no fiber, none of that stuff. So I said, John, this is the best deal. I'm going to go home and finish my trip because I still got to get to the Olympics and run with the bulls in Pamplona. And I'm going to get the materials and send it back to you, and I'll come back and show you how to make surfboards. And so Patty is a junior in high school. I figured by the time I get back, maybe she's graduated from high school. So, yeah, I don't know if they had that rule in, what, 18 or 16 before you can have sex or whatever that rule was. There was no rules back then. <laughs> Forget those rules. So, I started, so one day I buy him a whole bunch of food. I write him a long thank you letter because Thelma had gone to work, Patty had gone to school. And she had to wear a little uniform in school, and John was selling cars. And he would call home every now and then. Their house was right on the beach, and I'd go surfing and diving every day, and uh, I could answer their phone because it was right on the sand, you know, like Beach Road would be. And uh, so he called home, and I didn't answer it. So there's only one way out of Cape Town, out of Cape Town, to go to Durban. That's where I wanted to go. And we had talked about the coastline. I said, John, there's got to be surf all along there. And he said, I know there is. He said, there's especially one place. Got Cape St. Francis is the name of it. You got to stop there and there will be surf. It's a big point sticks out. So, okay, that's in my head. And so <clears throat> I call, he calls. I'm not there. He didn't answer the phone. He jumps in a Volkswagen that he's trying to sell. 
goes to high school and gets Patty. I took a bus all through town to the end of the bus line. It turns around and goes back into town. So I get out there. That's where I started hitchhiking. So, you know, there's never a car would go by you. They'd always stop. You know, who are you? What are you doing out here? They want to know. Come home for dinner or something. Uh, so I'm out there, and here comes cars, and they'd stop, and I'd talk. And so I'm sitting under a little tree, and I see a little Volkswagen coming. It's slowing down. I'm going to talk. Gets closer, and I'm looking in there, and John's driving, and Patty's in the other seat. And they pull up, and they said, you can't go now. Patty's crying. I said, I'm crying. And I go, oh, God, I'll never leave this place. This is too good. So I get in the car, and I stay another two months. <laughs> and John says, Okay, you gotta go. I think the plan's a good one. I will get you partial ride with a salesman that goes up to Durban and drives along the coast. It'd be like going to San Francisco from Laguna or something. So a couple months later, he picks me up and we say goodbye and everybody's crying. And I go off with this guy. And so we get Paul, the road goes around False Bay. And you know, there's surf all along. It's just like driving here with nobody there. I said, gotta stop, I gotta take a picture. I got pictures of me. I, I couldn't take a picture of me surfing. Actually, I didn't have a board. We had, I made those boards in Cape Town. No way. So uh, they were, he made them out of styrofoam, wrapped them in canvas, and then put lacquer over the top of the canvas. That's how bad they were. But they were they surfboards. They float. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I'd get out and take a picture, and finally we get to Cape St. Francis, and I could see surf around there. I said, "You got to go on. I'm getting out here. I'm not. I'm not going any further with you." So I get is out. There any? So well, is there a there's town? No, there's no town. There's no town. There's no gas station. No anything. There was one building, one building, and it was. Uh, I even have a picture of it. Uh, <laughs> these these aren't in, pictures. Love it. In order, here's here's the bus that was thrown. Molotov cocktails at us. Wow. That's crazy. So so he lets me out. I go over to this. It, it says no Cape St. Francis Trading Company or something like that. I got the picture right here. And they had a dog there. And I was sitting around patting the dog. And... Uh, it's incredible. No, no, no town, nothing, just one building. Uh, yeah. These aren't in order, but. Uh, but you so I thought it was a I good idea to get out. Well, I got out, and this guy, his name was, uh, uh, owned that little store, and he owned all this property around it, around Cape St. Francis, and uh, I slept on the sidewalk in front of the store, and uh, the next day he took me. To, out to the very end of Cape St. Francis, drove me out there, and I've got a picture of the sign. It says Cape St. Francis. Uh, so you were bringing this film, there was nowhere to develop it on the trip. You no, would just no, I'd bring, send it home to my mom. You'd just mail so, it out. Well, American Express had offices in Cape Town, Cairo, Bombay, India, Singapore. So once you got to those places, so you're in uh, Well, the first thing you do is always go to American Express because I told my mom, I'm heading in this direction and you can write me. So a letter might be there three months before I got there, but they'd save them. That's where everybody went for their mail. 
there's, you know, in Europe, of course, in Paris and Rome, there's chicks are all there. You want to go there anyway, you know, you might get lucky. And uh, <laughs> so I'd get my mail, and I would mail these canisters home to my mom. And she had them developed, all this stuff, before I got home. Uh, Sorry about the moves, Mom. Sorry about the... <laughs> <laughs> She's like, get your ass home. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I wish I should put get these in order somehow. Uh, so here's a picture of Bruce and I the day before he died. Oh. So for the so um, so I get out there and he this guy uh, at the store had an, you know what an Australian surf ski is? It's kind of a paddleboard with a kicked up nose. It's semi hollow and you sit on it and. Yeah paddle it with a paddle like a kayak but it has a little fin on it and you can kind of surf it so I surfed that at Bruce's Beauties and all along because there's a thousand breaks and they didn't have any names now they got names to every one of them and I ride around the corner so Cape Francis sticks way out here I got a picture of the whole Cape I could find that for you uh, but it then goes in. There's all these breaks that go into Jay Bay. This is a whole huge bay, and we're talking about 30 miles and just break after break. Hmm. The reefs are so little points. So the, the, well, the big swell comes up from Antarctica, hits Cape, wraps into this bay, and then as it goes down the line, it hits little reefs and other little baby points and makes bitch and surf. Yeah, <clears throat> and so. You know, I was there, I was just enthralled with this whole thing and took pictures, but I couldn't take a picture of me on the wave because right. I was the only one there. Yeah. There was no, there was nothing there. So I've been back, I've been back 12 times to Africa. I've, I've spent a lot of time there. Now, Jay Bay is a city way bigger than Data Point. Yeah. It's about the size of Costa Mesa or something. There's car dealerships, hotels. Guys come from all over the world to surf there. It's yeah. a surf town. And that's what they do. And there's so many breaks, and they break every day. It's just they're lined up every day. So well, after Africa, well, then I hitchhiked from there all the way straight up Africa to Cairo. Got on a ship across the Mediterranean to Istanbul. Then I hitchhiked from Turkey all across uh, Romania, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, and then into Europe, and went to the Olympic Games and ran with the bulls in Pamplona, Spain, got pictures of all that. <clears throat> I went to Germany, bought a Volkswagen out of the uh, factory in, in Germany for $860, I think it was. A Beetle? A Beetle, uh, and drove it to uh, Rotterdam, got on another ship in Rotterdam to New York, and got to New York, picked up my Beetle, and drove it to Laguna. Wow. <laughs> and then, okay. <laughs> So much. We, we got to get back to Hobie, but you, you drove all the way back to California, and then you, you're friends with Bruce Brown. Sure. No, I showed Bruce and Hobie where I'd been, all these pictures that I've got here. Well, they kind just, of surfed here, and this surf was great, but, you know, they could see the wave, but nobody was on it. How, long was, your, how long was your trip? Three years. Holy shit. Yeah, I right? left in 58, got back in 61. Okay. So, yeah, it when you're doing it the way I did, it takes. I waited 19 days for one car to come by. It's not like 101. <laughs> and you don't sit by the road with oh, your thumb out. Yeah. You can go do whatever you want. You hear a car coming in low gear. Oh, 
you know, it's going 12 miles an hour yeah. just to get across the stream or over the rocks and shit. And you'd walk out, the parrots start going off, the monkeys are screeching. It's like a parade's coming yeah. to town. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. our cars. <laughs> it was no secret. You'd know an hour ahead yeah. of it. So you come back, you're back in the States. I, start, I was patching boards for <clears throat> Hobie. Uh, I built, uh, I ordered all the stuff, put it in a container, shipped it from San Pedro. And I told Hobie, I, uh, well, then we went to Hawaii. That's when I went over and opened the store in Honolulu. And then I came back and flew to Cape Town when I knew the container was there and flew down there, met Whitmore and Patty and the whole nine yards, big reunion. We were having a ball and I showed him how to make surfboards. He quits selling used cars, starts Whitmore Surfboards and becomes wow. the biggest surfboard maker in all of Africa. And I make him uh, Bruce Brown film representative, John Severson to come out with Sever Magazine. I got him to distribute Surfer Magazine. So he lived in this little cottage with all these people. Now he built the highest house on Table Mountain with a magnificent view over all of Table Bay. So you turned his life totally right I mean he every time we'd talk he said I can't believe it he said he was a smart guy and he knew how to work and responsible and you know all of those things I opened the door for him yeah and he came I went there 12 times he came here six times seven times stayed with me met Hobie met Bruce and then Bruce I finally got Bruce to go down there I went there three times before Bruce went there once and so Bruce left in 64 to make the movie. Okay, 64 is when... And it, the movie wasn't done until 65. So when you came home and showed them all the all footage, this stuff, all the pictures, yeah. they were like, holy crap, Like, I said, we need you to make a movie. There. Yeah, and Bruce said, yeah, you're right. I got, And that's when they decided, you know, normally they'd make a movie every year. And he said, I'm going to skip a year and take two years to make the movie, and that's what he did. And so, Endless Summer was a lot bigger, costlier production, but uh, obviously way more successful yeah. too. So, can I ask you why they chose Mike Hinson and Robert August? Do you know why, or well, were they just Bruce the best surfers? Well, two young or? guys, and that you know he knew those guys. I don't, you know, they're both good surfers, and uh, Robert wasn't going to go at first. He told him no. And then he talked to a couple of his teachers and said, are you crazy? You yeah. ought to go. And his Blackie, his dad said, hell yes, go in a minute. Yeah. So then Robert changed his mind. Yeah. And, uh, but he wanted, you know, young guys. And I was, I was 40 years old by then. Yeah. Trip of a lifetime. So, so when you finally came back Barstool. and you started working with Barstool. Hobie again. Well, so then Hobie said, you don't want to do this. He said, let's go to Hawaii. You know all the guys. Introduce me to all those guys. You know Downing and Rabbit and all those guys. So he and I go over there, and uh, we rented a room on Kalakaua, and uh, I just went to the beach and started surfing. And we, we went on a DC-4, drove from Dana Point. Hobie didn't take a board because he was going to do some business, and <clears throat> I took my board. We took it. On, so in those days on the airplane, you'd go into LAX, walk down the steps onto the ground, the tarmac, and then walk up into the airplane with my board under my arm into the DC-4 in the aisle, laying it down on the rail. And every time the girl would come with a cart, she'd hit the cart, would hit the fan, and it'd fall down. Oh, I'm so sorry. Is it okay? And she'd be apologizing. <laughs> and, you know, it was like a 9-6 or whatever it was. 
And a guy, you know, three rows down, got to take a leak. He gets up, kicks the board over. He's apologizing. And, you know, the board was right in the aisle of the plane. And I get to the Honolulu, get the board in the aisle. That's straight celebrity there. status, though, when you're the <laughs> yeah. only surfer on the plane with a board <laughs> so like that. So it was. Did they it, charge you extra for boards? No, no, of course not. No, no. It's part of the, your luggage, you yeah. know. No, but I'm mean, just carry amazed on. how this is changed. You know, it's just one on. of the many things the clothes, the attitude, the mentality, yeah. all the things that changed. So we were there. Oh, my about, gosh. I hope you were there. We were two weeks. And one day I had been surfing all day with uh, a couple of friends uh, at Queens. And Hobie came down to the beach, and he went out a couple times on my board. And uh, he said, I want you to come with me. Uh, we were, he, rented, he rented a car. I never used it. We were just staying right at Waikiki. And uh, he said, I just rented a building down on Copyline Boulevard. And so I went down and looked at it. And he said, uh, I want you to stay here, and we'll, you can open a store. And I said, Hobie, I don't have any money. Uh, I don't have, you know, bring anything over here but a couple of trunks, T-shirts. Uh, he said, that's no problem. He said, you don't have to pay for the boards till you sell them. I'll send you boards over. And so he said, the next morning, well, it wasn't the next morning, a couple days later, I painted the whole inside of the store. Hobie made, I also got that picture. You know that picture. Uh -huh. I was going to say it. Might Standing be. out front? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there it is up top. Yeah. No. Is that not the no. one that you see? That's the shop, though, on the uh, yeah. left-hand side. That's when you're standing in the corner. Up but this up top? Yeah, that oh, yeah, no, that yeah. was a different time. That, yeah. But uh, this was a—I've got it in here somewhere. But yeah. uh, it's a—he made a sign out of fiberglass and resin, bitchin' sign with the Hobie logo, and we hung it up out in front of the store. And I took a picture of it that I got here of Hobie standing oh, yeah, under yeah, that sign. You've seen about. that? Picture. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Hobie surfboards on a little. Yeah, thing. yeah. And so I took him to the airport, and I didn't know Doodley Cities. Well, what he laughed about, he said, well, you must have learned something in that liquor store that went broke. He said, figure it out. Uh, I'm going back to Dana Point, and I'll send you boards tomorrow. So three days later, I got 17 boards delivered to that store, 1475 Capilani Boulevard. <laughs> That's the fucking yeah. And uh, we, the, the truck driver put them out. There was a little lawn in front of the store. Put them out there. I sold all 17 in about... 20 minutes. Shut the front door. Didn't even got them in the building. Never got one of them, man. <laughs> Who bought them? All these little Chinese Hawaiian kids. They were all, they were, I put a sign in the window called Hobie Surfboard. See, up until then, you had to go to a guy like Joe Kitchens was making Inner Island, but he was making them in the garage. Six weeks later, you, you might, get, might it. get it. You know? Yeah. Were they cheaper? Well, they're 100 bucks, $100. Uh, it depends. You know, if, Hobie just said I didn't order him. So some, and there was like if you had panels, that was an extra three dollars. And if you had a tail block, was two fifty. Offset stringers were two fifty each. A T band was five bucks. You know. Was he like planning like okay, we got to have some women's boards or some smaller oh, no, kid no. boards? It was Hobie just, just sent me seventeen boards. I don't know what they you were. Sold I, them all in twenty minutes before I you even put them in the store. I didn't know the, the price of them, so I they're all in a box, and I. Lifted the box up and in a plastic wrap and they'd slide out. Oh, there'd be 10 little kids. I don't mean little kids, but 15, 18, 20 years yeah. old. I'm 
35 or 40 by then. And they're coming out, I want this and I want, and I say, well, I don't know how much they are. Let me get them in. Oh, no, no, no. And, and they would put on there these cards that Hobie had made, had who shaped it, glassed it. And then there was a number there. I didn't know if that number was wholesale or you retail. You saw the $100, $101, yeah, I, I, the boards I, kept going up in So half of them weren't marked up. And I sold hundred, and they're putting money in my shirt pocket, and all of a sudden they're all gone, and I've got a shirt pockets full of money, and no surfboards, and I called Hobie up that day. I said I sold all of them, and we were making surfboards for uh, Sears and Roebuck, uh, and so they had an for, order. For what for displays? No, no, they were selling them because catalogs. Yeah, so Sears and Sears Roebuck. Roebuck would they would, they would Chris have you, you know, heard of Sears like, and Roebuck? Two uh, Sears. Sears, yeah. yeah. Like the yeah. first of They had yeah. 200 yeah. stores, and they'd order mm -hmm. on certain ones. They're each. department stores. Yeah, right. yeah. kind of. Like, they sold everything. Well, they were sporting goods. Yeah. Oh, they were sporting yeah. goods stores. Okay. Not, they didn't have clothes and everything, but, you know, guns and, you know, just They sold appliances stuff. and shit. Like, mm -hmm. Well, later on, they started okay. getting into it. So, But Hobie had, like, an order for 200 boards, but he couldn't produce them all at once, so they'd get... 10 a week or whatever it was. So he just stole them from Sears and said, hey, we only get five a week and he'd take five from this guy. So the next day he sent me another 15. Wow. And I got those and I those I got in the store and I called him and said, well, how much are they? He said, oh, you got to add 10 bucks and do this. And so, you know, I got a little bit better organized in the second go round. And uh, so I sold those. I don't know if it's the first day, but I sold them all in another couple days. Yeah. And wow. so all of a sudden, I hadn't paid Hobie for any of them, and I had like $3,000 in the fucking bank. I'd never seen so much money, and, but I owed a bunch of it. Yeah. And so, but I didn't really have to pay it for 30 days. And so that's when I started doing t-shirts and yeah. getting other stuff in the store. So as, as you were learning the retail side of it, how, how long was the Honolulu, then it was Maui? Yeah, that was then, that, uh, probably a year later. But I had the Honolulu store for 10 years. Lopez worked for me, Jack Shipley, Randy Rarick. They all were in high school in Punahou. And they'd come, they were the kids who were buying the board from me. Yeah. And so they came down hanging out. And I put Rarick and uh, Lopez to work They just after school. And uh, finally, I opened another store. Oh, that's a whole other story. Surfline. See, when I opened, the, did the clothing company, well, what happened when I put, you know, I told you about the jams yep. and all the guys in the Makaha contest. So <clears throat> at the same time, Bing and Hanson and uh, Dewey Weber and Greg Noel and Yader, they all came over for that contest because it was on TV. And they wanted to see, the word got out that Hobie had a retail store. Nobody had a retail. That's the first one. And they all wanted to see it. So they came over, and I, these are all friends of mine. I grew up, you know, surfing with all these guys because yeah. there was just a hundred of us around here. And so they came to the Hobie shop, and, and Greg Noel, he said, "Oh God damn it, you got to carry my boards." I said, "Greg, I can't carry yours here." And, and Hanson and Yader's a real good friend of mine. And I said, "Renny, I can't carry those here." You got to do your own. And so, well, I didn't say that. I'm thinking right away. The wheels are going around. Got to open another. They store. left, you know, in a week. And I left the next day behind him. I rented a Volkswagen bug at the airport, and I drove from Santa Barbara to San Diego, saw Gordon and Smith, every one of them along the way. And they all knew me. See, the Hawaiians, you know, they had a bad reputation of, you know, if they had the money, are they gonna send it? 
back to them. So yeah. basically, they're collecting. What, what Downing did. Yeah, what yeah. Downing did. <laughs> yeah. And so they're hesitant to get other guys, but they all knew me, and I was honest, and they knew that, that I wouldn't be with Hobie if that wasn't happening. So I said, I want you to have your dealership. I'm going to open another store, and I'm going to have a place. You each, each one of you guys can have 10 boards in the store. So oh. I had 10 boards of Hanson, 10 of... Greg Knoll, and I had them all in this Back in, in Oahu. A block from my store. This is 508 P.E. Coy, next to the Beaver Grill. And everybody knew where the Beaver Grill was. So, <laughs> so did you get... I owned it. I set it all up. But I didn't want the public to know that. I was the Hobie guy. Dude. And so I stayed guy. there, and I hired... Retail assassin over here. Yeah. LLC. Incredible. Did, did, did Shoreline did Hobie why? know? Oh yeah, I called okay. Hobie. I said, "This okay." He got, he got his oh, blessing. Oh yeah, no, I, t- I always talk to Hobie about yeah. it. I said, "Hobie, you know, all these guys and Hobie knew that he was over there too." He said, "They're all going to be coming open stores, so it's Might better well be you. It, it be me yeah. competing against me. I can control it better that way." Smart. Than if they do, so smart. And so, why could I have met you like? 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would have been fun. He was too busy working. <laughs> they were working. <laughs> too busy they were thinking about opening up a store. No, that's not how you do it. This is how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so then it was funny because <clears throat> guys in Honolulu, they come to a Hobie shop and they say, I want to, I got a trade in, uh, you know, an old inner island. I want to get a new Hobie. How much are you going to trade in? I'd say 30 bucks or something. And the guy said, well, 30 bucks, I can get 35 down at the Surfline store. I said, well, be my guest. Yeah. I didn't want to tell him I owned that, yeah. too. Yeah. And I didn't really care which one he got that. Yeah. It was a toss-up for you me. All the money is going to the same place. Yeah. Oh, that's right. so, so I hate to end it. To you got to end it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, I, I mean, it, it, this is like part one. <laughs> yeah, okay, this is just part one. Okay. This is just part well, one. Well, I mean, anytime you want to do it, I'm up for it. I, I, I think it's important to do this. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy oh, yeah. it, but yeah. I also think it's important. You yeah. guys got to have Mets yeah. Mondays. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Before we... Okay, we're going we're gonna to timestamp two hours and 37 minutes. And you just started Surfline. And when, the next time that we sit down... We'll, we'll go we'll from there. Up. Yeah. But we want to... It is the 70th anniversary of Hobie Surf sure. Shop. And yeah. I wanted to really hype that up talk about it and just you know well amplify that message yeah, yeah that's important that's a yeah. big deal 70 years and 70. you were part of it and i know that um yeah it's too bad hobie's not here nobody i know got it that would be so bitching if he right? was still alive oh, yeah. yeah not for sure but I, I wanted to get you know um some of the new guards perspective mm-hmm. um I dig it. Do you, yeah. Dick, you want to take us up to, you want to do chronologically up to the stores? However, you could take us up through 87 or to 96 if we could take it from 96. Sure, sure. Why don't you sure. take it up to 96? Well, they don't, Mark they can't anymore. They're out of stuff. Okay. We'll do that next week or yeah. another time. Okay. All right. Good. Yeah. So maybe we'll take it from 96. Yeah. 84, yeah. 80. Yeah. yeah. Something. Yeah. 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 You want the whole thing off? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We can do that at the office. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, this would be like a good intro yeah. to like. But let's do this though. Can we talk about some of Hobie's alters accomplishments so our listeners can, you know, get educated on the catamaran, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Well, the glasses, where's my. Uh, yeah. Right there. Yeah. Here's, yeah. This was 
one of his great inventions. He figured out, you know, originally we had glass dot glasses, and then we had polarized glasses, but the polarization lens would scratch really easy. You put it down like that, and you couldn't see out of it. It just scratched all up. So Hobie, so when we made the Hobie cat, Hobie created a way to vacuum laminate foam. He got grubby, Clark foam by then, which was Hobie foam, uh, to make little strips about a half an inch thick. And he would vacuum laminate those foam to the fiberglass hull of the Hobie cap. That's why they were so light and buoyant, but so strong. You could hit them with a hammer and hardly break them, because wow. they had that fiberglass and foam laminated was a sandwich. So Hobie used the same sandwich mentality and put a polarized lens between two glass lenses. And that's what this is. So you have the benefit of the polarization, but the protection of the glass, and you can grind the glass if you're gonna have uh, special ground glass lenses. Yeah. So this gives all kinds of stuff. So this was a total breakthrough. Everybody else had either polarized glasses or glass ones that didn't work. Yeah. And so here you have the package together, uh, in a, sand, a vacuum sandwich, the yeah. same as the catamaran. I didn't know that about the sunglasses. So, you know, and then he made the Hobie Hop, set a world speed record, radio controlled glider. Hobie one came down to me one day, he said, you're not a fly on a glider? I said, hell no. He said, come up to the water tank today at four, and I'll teach you. So I go up to the water tank, uh, up on top of the hill, where a guy lived, what was his name? Lived up close by. And we started, and I crashed them, but you know, they were made, uh, old, when Hobie made, he was a model guy, he was always making models. But in those days, you made it out of little pieces of balsa wood and glued it together. He made these out of fiberglass, so the, the fuselage of the airplane was fiberglass. And you could drive it in 50 miles an hour and it didn't break it. You use it again, it'd break the wings off, but didn't, because they were made the old way. So. Here was the Hobie Hawk, was a totally new type of construction that was almost indestructible, and it set the world speed record for radio-controlled grinders. And so Hobie taught me how to do it. I didn't know how to ride yeah. it. And I started, see, it was like a chain of command. Hobie would invent some, and when he'd get it about 95% done, he'd get bored with it. And he would be thinking of something else, and I would done know I had this shit, and I would be picking up the pieces, and so I can sell the shit out of that. <laughs> so I would then you know, take it to market and get it finalized, get a packaging on the box, and do that stuff. Hope oh, he didn't like to do any of that. And then all of a sudden, I'm I down here right at the Hobie shop selling the radio-controlled gliders and the radio package itself, and then I'd take them out to Salt Creek or up at the water tank, show them how to do it, and they'd crash and got to get new wings, and, and that was a whole new thing. And we eventually sold that to a model company in Tennessee. Uh, when it got too big, it was, it, you know, we could have pursued it, but it took a whole empire to go run that. You know, yeah. these were all big. Yeah, you guys had your hands in so many things, we, it would be we like. We couldn't do all that. Yeah. And we didn't want to leave here. Uh, we know we had the circle, we're not going to go yeah, on the you're other not going side across, of the coast that yeah. way. So, you know, we had our parameters. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you had all these successful 
businesses that got to, go to a point where you had to sell them. I can sell that, Hobie. I can sell that for hundred grand. So I'd go out. See, Hobie didn't own most of the stuff. I owned more of the stuff than he did. I owned all the stores. He never owned any of them. And I used to, one day, at the Laguna store, I was out on the sidewalk leaning on a parking meter, and Hobie drove by in his van, and it was all a funny old Dodge van. I yelled, Hobie, and he did, you know, he's driving off. He's unconscious most of the time. He's thinking of shit, you know. And he's driving by, he didn't look at me. I said, Hobie, Hobie. And I yelled at him, and finally looks around. I said, this is the Hobie shop. Been here three years. Why don't you check it out? <laughs> and so I got him to park and come see. He'd never been to the store. <laughs> oh, this is what you've been doing. In Laguna. <laughs> this is what you've been doing. Yeah, he, yeah. he didn't, you know, he wasn't into that. So. Oh, this okay. is too good. Okay, we got to... We gotta, we gotta go. cut it here. Yeah, it's Valentine's Day. Right, gotta keep the wife happy. Seventy year anniversary for Hobie. I, I, you want to mention that book at all? Or well, it's, no it's big a great deal. book. This is, yeah, it's this a Joe Dunn book. It tells that story. This tells yeah. a whole story on Hobie Reese. Okay, mm -hmm. and you know it, it's got pictures of. Uh, Take well, it with you. This is my yeah. dad's yeah. restaurant. Yeah, awesome. Right yeah. in front of the, life, the lifeguard tower is right there. Yeah, you can eat can, 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 yeah. can we get uh, Dick to sign it? Sure. I, yeah. I used to run barefoot. We have a black sharpie here. Oh, yeah. I could beat everybody yeah. running barefoot. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, yeah. I can't wait. So, Herbie Hancock. We're going to mm -hmm. cut it off here and we will pick it up, but. What an honor and a privilege it's been to sit down so awesome. and, you know, unfortunately we didn't get to talk about Buck. Buck. We'll do that in the oh, office. That's, part that's two. Part yeah. two in the office. Part two. In the Tiki Bar. Yeah. Yeah. Because. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Buck, how long have you been legacy. with Toby? Uh, surfing for them for I even remember. 20, 25 years pretty much. I guess yeah. it would be, I, I forget if I, like, it was right, if I was 12, right before I turned 13. Might have been like my 13th birthday I started surfing for Hobie, yeah, so I'll be 37 in May. Yeah, yeah and your was, sister used to ride for... She started riding for us the same And time. she's working... At, and she still is our men's buyer, yeah. 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 And Chris, you've been here for... Been here almost 11 years. Yeah. Yeah. There's a picture of the buckaroo and mm, Marissa awesome. and Jack right now. <laughs> I yeah, love to get that. I was probably yeah. 14 or 15. Yeah. That's amazing. Isn't that good? I think that's pre-driver's yeah. license. She... Is that... My sister's the... That's she's Marissa. Yeah, yeah, probably hard to tell, but... Yeah. Oh, well, that's little me. Well, that's uh, you know, it, we come from retail too, and we both yeah. worked at Huntington Surf and Sport. Jay rode for Huntington Surf and Sport, and you know, we we had talks before about how like we want to remind people what surf shops mean. Yes, not just to the culture and the industry, but the community, and mm -hmm. seventy years of of employing people. Well, here's a stat for you too. We have 18 what we consider core people that yeah. have been with us, and you know, books, books, one of them, and Tori worked for Dick, and of those 18 people, that's 350 years some oh, total. No yeah, working with Hobie. So wild. Yeah, and yeah, that's wow. cool. Yeah, so that's an average 20 years mm -hmm. per. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then and like Lennon brought up the community, and it's like yeah. you know with with the with the schools fundraisers yeah. or the junior mm -hmm. guards program yep. or you know community. like the, yeah, there's yeah. just mm -hmm. so much. I, that goes on that you guys support and it's it's just you know it's a, it's a staple in the community yeah. you know yeah. well it's one of those things too you surf in the morning and you conversate in the water and then you come to the store and then you see those same people come back by the store to get their wax for the next day yeah 
and like the conversation continues from the water to the yeah, land. Yeah, talking board, waves, yeah, exactly. forecast. Like it's just you're yeah. like taking it in the moment of Remind like actually me, acting. Tell you next time about how women's stuff got in the Hobie stores. Oh, dude, that's all. Yeah, that's how I marketed it. I had my wife take her top off. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to start. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. All right. I guess we'll end it there. Yeah. Big sign the book for you. Yeah. Thank hey, you. Thank you guys. This is right. incredible. Good to see oh, yeah, that was Dude, good. Congrats. Congrats. 70 years. <laughs> Cheers oh, to 70 years, Hobie Surf awesome. Shop. Peace. I love it. Yeah. When, when's the next the, step? The Temple of Stoke. Oh, I guess I'll yeah. water Thank there. you. Bonsai Bowls. Hands down the best bowls, period. Seven locations. Two in Hawaii, five in Southern California. Bonsai Bowls. Go get some. Ashland Hard Seltzer. Made from all natural ingredients. No sugar, zero carbs, gluten-free. Great taste and guilt-free good times. Ashland Hard Seltzer. Shade Sunscreen. The best sunscreen for all surfers. Shade Sunscreen. It's been around since the sun. Shade, Shade. Sunscreen. Clearweather is a family-owned footwear brand started by our friends Josh and Brandon Brubaker. They are driven to create their own path in the corporate sneaker world. Less corporate, more independent. Clearweather. Clearweatherbrand.com. Fuwax is the best, ickiest, stickiest wax in the game. Fuwax. Late Night with Chalky is supported by Inherent Bummer. Surf entertainment, thoughtful writing, surf videos, music, and fresh hell for the core surf community. Remember, it's not the end of the world. Subscribe and check it all out at InherentBummer.com. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please give us a five-star rating and spread the word. Special thanks to our good friends, James Williams for our awesome artwork and Justin Reynolds for the amazing music.